We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome into the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. Good win for the Gators over Vandy. Big week coming up here for Florida as we start, Allen, a murderer's row of games. Mm. We get a little break after this one, but South Carolina by Georgia and then a bunch of games that are going to be very difficult. We are entering the stretch of the season that will define Florida's season. Are you excited about what lies ahead here? Yes, a little a little trepidation in there as well. I, I think this game... It's probably deserted its own little like coda here. Is that this is, you know, whatever Florida does in this game probably won't affect it too much moving forward. You get that bye week and you're going to play Georgia and you're probably going to live in the aftermath of that. So I have a chance here to claw back some momentum heading into that bye week. I think this is a really, really important game. We're going to talk about just maybe how important when we get to the end of uh, the Vandy game. But yeah, it feels oddly very significant for where Florida is as a program. Yeah, Florida 1-7 and seven on the road under Billy entering this game. We've lost 13 of our last 14, I think, away from the Swamp in general. So pivotal week to see if Florida has progressed a year and a half into Billy's tenure as a team on the road. Have they figured out what has been ailing them? But first, as always, if you like the content on this show, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews, become a patron on Patreon, and then, as always, a shout-out to our, our just illustrious supporters and also volunteers. Yeah, our The crew. producer, B-Red, and Carly, the commissioner, doing the film review stuff. They are legendarily helpful. We're so thankful and grateful to them, for sure. All right, GNFP Sammy, GNFP Java Discord, still going strong. If you want to join those, those are in our pod links, wherever you get your podcast. And merch, available also in your pod links, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about some dono activity in the past week. Nemo O leveled up from an old small dono to a a newer but still not the newest level of small dono. So they leveled up, but they're like sub-small level <laughs> up. 
And then Stephen Weinmiller levels up from an old small dono to a new small dono. Kind of funny. Yeah, both welcome of up the level ups. I happened this week, but let's go level up. Thank you for increasing your support. A large dono from a brand new donor, Michael Grusbeck. Welcome aboard, Michael. Thank you. And a level up from Alfred Garcia into the yeah. large dono category. So appreciate you all. Uh, my voice, as you may have noticed, is struggling yet again this year. I It's the theme of the semester. I was in Baltimore at both of the ALDS games cheering on my Orioles, and they took two L's. Uh, the atmosphere was sensationally electric for a baseball game. It would have been even better had they gotten wins. But my voice is, you know, I'm really, I've been sending it this year, despite my team's not giving the results I think my voice deserves. But <laughs> again, bear with me as I uh, I just destroy my voice box each week. I'm here for it. Okay. Cooper and Kylie Craig sitting on the throne still. Thank you, Cooper and Kylie Craig. Congrats. My parents, actually. That was my parents. My dad was like, man, my mom and dad were like, you know, it's really great, Cooper and Kylie Craig. It's a very memorable name that they hear each week on the pod. I love and it. So shout out there to Cooper and Kylie Craig. We know that uh, your kids hear this each week and get a thrill out of it. All right. Let's talk about those other legends. James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Jason Walker, the big homie, Little Peyton, Constantine, Double O. Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Mark, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarato, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin, baby, and Doug DiRgilio. Okay. The Gators do beat Vanderbilt. I don't want to take that for granted. No, it doesn't always not. happen. It let's did not, not happen last granted. year. So coming out of this Vanderbilt game, uh, you know, before we get to this, I want to do a little stock report here for you. But let me get we're, we're talking about atmosphere here a second ago. I got to say, I'm kind of proud of Gator Nation. The team has obviously had some ups and downs this year and over the last few years. But each game you know, full crowd, vocal crowd, even the announcers on the broadcast mentioned like, Hey, Florida fans are bringing it here against Vanderbilt. I think that's great. I think that's good for the program. I think it's good for just as, as like a community, like showing out for the game. So yeah, props to Gator nation. That's fantastic. I missed obviously the game in the swamp, but I love hearing that that occurred, especially because Vanderbilt is easily generally a snooze week. But mm-hmm. as we've been noting, the students especially seem to really have bought into supporting this program. And that, that does help set the stage for the atmosphere in general when they're really bought in. And we know the alumni have been bringing it for years, uh, noise-wise. And, and the Swamp, always really special. One thing that I'll say about atmosphere, being at the O's game, uh, Baltimore fans, super rowdy similar environment in general, Ravens games, et cetera. But most places in the country are not like that. And I'm spoiled that a lot of the teams I support are excellent home field advantage sports. And that's one reason why I really like it. Like the the opportunity for a unique event live in person each year has a lot to do with the electric atmosphere of a lot of people together yelling, screaming, cheering. It's special. And, uh, you know, I never really want to miss Swamp Saturdays when possible because it's just a spectacle of humanity to be there. And and obviously we hope that Florida's product in the field can can elevate the team down the road so those atmospheres get even better. For sure. Well said. Okay. I'm gonna do a little stock report. Up, down, neutral. Right. I'll start. I usually put you on the hot seat with these questions. So I'll I'll start with the offense. I'm gonna say stock up a little bit. 
right? I think the floor has been raised a little bit, and here's why I would say that. We're missing arguably our best two offensive linemen in this game, Austin Barber and Kingsley, missing ETN, maybe our three best players in total. And the team played competently. Again, we're going to kind of try to contextualize Vanderbilt, but we saw this team struggle against a team like Charlotte to put points on the board. They scored certainly enough points to win this game comfortably. And, you know, we're going to talk about where they did well and where they didn't do well, but I, I think the the stock is up just because the floor is a little bit higher for me for this team. I, I think they've figured out just enough with some new, you know, talent on the field that we're going to get to some nice performances, some, some of the younger guys. But, yeah, stock up a little bit for me. What about you? I'm going to say neutral. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the Charlotte game because we have seen before the impact that Trey has on the offense. And you saw it again in right. this game with how that causes Vanderbilt and any team thus far on film to shift differently when he's in the game versus when Ricky is running that jet orbit motion. It changes what Florida can do. But neutral for me because Vanderbilt is almost, and this is going to be very disrespectful to them, but we talked about it in the prep week. They're almost an FCS team this year especially defensively. They are yeah, they're horrible. not good defensively. And our exact game plan was if we can't convert third downs and do what we want versus this team, then what are we doing was kind of the thought. Therefore, it's really important, I think, not to make anything of this game offensively. Other than what you said, Alan, individual performances do matter, right? What you put on film as a player can translate. Hey, this guy's dangerous. Uh, it was nice that the offensive line handled business versus an inferior opponent. It's nicer when you see some skill guys that are young and they look like, hey, this guy can probably do more versus real competition. So for me, I'm neutral because of the opposition. I think that Florida used a game plan, as we'll talk about, Alan, that is is not sustainable once again in a real game versus a real defense and opponent. But it was here. And Charlotte's a nice example. We didn't have Trey for that one. And that offense struggled we had him in this one it, it is improved versus charlotte but don't i think it would not be wise to buy this stock right now thinking maybe this offense has turned even any kind of corner i think that's still unlikely we're gonna find out soon. right not not that it's turned a corner all of a sudden they're good but less propensity to be as bad yeah it's a penny stock that you're buying on yeah. the up with some upside there i like go. that i like that all right defense i'm gonna go stock up and maybe considerably they had a downturn last week and they rebounded right so we have very little bit very little data from them in terms of the austin armstrong era only a few games right it's been all positive you got your first negative what happens in the preceding game or the the next game and they rebounded nicely and again can we'll contextualize it's vanderbilt it's not a electric offense but they looked good they returned to form in a lot of different ways and so there's more stability there for me as well. So I'm going I'm to say stock up for them. Yeah, stock up for me. And we talked about this last week, right? What the defense was doing, that was an anomaly. What happened last week, that was not going to continue for the long run. There's too much good stuff on film. Uh, Coach Ham is is putting great stuff out there each week. And we largely thought the week before was not you know Coach Ham's fault. So good game plan, good execution. You take away a touchdown that shouldn't have been a touchdown, which we'll talk about with Jason Marshall getting face masked really heavily. 
then they would have had less than 200 yards as an offense. And we would have held them to a lower total than most other teams have held them to. Now, obviously we faced a different quarterback, but it doesn't matter. The defense bounced back. We talked about this. What kind of defense do you want to be? What's your standard? And the defense showed us that they are not just going to be a, an inconsistent unit. I think they're going to show you that was a blip on the radar. They learned from that. And I think to immediately turn around, and even though, again, Vandy, not quality opposition, their offense is better than their defense. They are better. They have scored versus real teams. They have not been a complete waste like the defense has. This is more of a real result than what the offense had, but big response from the defense. Uh, I thought, again, on film, a lot of stuff was solid, but still a lot of room for improvement. And that's one of the best things about this defense. They're top 10 in most metrics, Alan. On film, you can pick up every game, multiple things that they're just going to get better at as they put more on film where they're wrong, uh, as they learn more as a unit how to play better. And that's the thing about this that I think makes their stock up. Like if you're buying now, there's still room for growth. This is not the top of where the defense is going to be. All right, the last category is the team. Now, this is going to be a little contradictory here because I just went stock up on the offense and defense. But this is a broader category, right? I'm... Maybe if you pigeonholed me here, I would just say very slight stock up, but mostly neutral. I don't think this changes my overall perspective on the team and their trajectory. I think uh, there's still a lot of unknowns, you know, considering our opponents the rest of the year and how they might play. But I think I've got a pretty good read on this team. Again, the floor is a little bit higher, but I don't, the ceiling isn't that much higher for me. Yeah, I'm neutral for for the reasons we just kind of listed. You can put those two together and, of course, we left out special teams, uh, which I suppose we'd both be up on given Trey Smack emerging as a sure. very consistent kicker, but still questionable in a lot of other phases. But yeah, I'm neutral. I think neutral is where I am with this team. I think I have an idea of what to expect, which means I don't know what to expect as a team performance. But generally, if the defense can hold it together, which we did not do versus Kentucky, we assume the offense gets the similar output we expect. This team could get to that seven or eight win number we talked about. And so this week, which is why I, I promo this at the opener, this week to me is pivotal. Mm-hmm. If the defense plays an entire quality game like they have been at home, like they did for the last half of Utah, but if they put in four quarters together and they play quality ball, I think we can be encouraged that this team then can win some of these coin flips. If we lay an egg on defense, which would be a surprise again, that will raise significantly new questions for me about our ability to perform away from the swamp down the stretch. So pivotal week for me, examining what this team's going to do, I think on the best side of the ball for them, which I think that side's got to carry us to some of these coin flip wins. All right, Florida does win 38-14. to 14. I predicted 32-13. You were at 30-10. So... Outperformed our expectations slightly, but overall the game script was pretty close to what we had in mind. Yeah, we're in the ballpark there, I feel like. Yeah. So the keys to the game. We both said something similar on offense. I said six completions past 15 yards. That's like that, it's like a joke. Yeah, that that six, you were like in dreamland. Yeah. <laughs> you said five pa- completed passes that travel 12 air yards. That was even more of a dreamland, actually. Uh, 28 total air yards. 28 total. And a brief, a brief, what is an air yard? Yeah, We've good. talked about it before. So air yards are how far the ball travels when the receiver catches it. So imagine the receiver gets no yards after catch. So 
If you're a wide receiver and you run a bubble screen and you catch the ball two yards behind the line of scrimmage and you run for 50, you're going to get 50 passing yards on the stat sheet, but you're going to get minus two air yards. Minus two because you caught it two yards behind the line of scrimmage. So Florida did have, if you're wondering, wow, 28 air yards. That's crazy. We had almost 300 passing yards. We had a lot of negative air yards. So we did have some plays, if you recall watching, where the ball may have traveled 8 to 10 to 12 air yards, but the majority of them were going nowhere or behind the line of scrimmage, and therefore a whopping 28, which is, look, this is an amazing total. And I keep bringing this up because if you want to go on your own and look up air yards for teams in the NFL or in college, the continual below 50-yard air yard number for an offense is unreal. It's it's honestly unfathomable. And Florida does it almost every week. And here we are again with a lot of quote passing yards. 28 total air yards. So the fact that I asked for five completed passes to travel more than 12 air yards, which could have happened theoretically, and you still could have had like a 50-yard air yard number. I'm not asking for a lot. We're not even close. We're not even near that number. Right. So this would, you could have a barbell result where you have like some passes that go further and a ton of negative. So you still Yeah, you could pause every single little pop pass to Trey is like minus three air yards. So yeah. if you we ran a bunch of those. Let's say that's five, let's minus fifteen yards. So to your point, Alan, you could have seventy five actual yards minus fifteen. You're still at sixty. But to get to twenty eight, you can do the math on your yeah. own at home. You're throwing a lot of passes behind the line of scrimmage. Uh and then ultimately Alan, we had a hundred and five intended air yards which means all the balls we threw that we actually threw it would have gone a total of 110 air yards we did not complete those passes down the field which would have led to our rubric here for offense being met uh, which we did not meet all right defensively you asked for less than 10 points did not get that but fairly close oh yeah almost and again you, you could argue you know one penalty call is different maybe that's yeah i'd like to talk about that when we get down there uh and then we both asked you asked for 100 yards, less than 100 yards rushing for them. I said less than 120 is a little more generous. Obviously, they completed both of those. And that was the key to keeping them one-dimensional. I think that was really helpful in the game. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about that offense. The Gator offense, that is. Uh, they were 5 of 12 on third down. So below below what Vanderbilt allows, which, again, that's not great. That was not a great. better result for <clears throat> Vanderbilt. Right in the number that I'd set for them. Again, I doubled down on 41% two weeks in a row, and they... Hit it on the numbers. That's a 41% third down. That's wild, actually. That's crazy. Not great is the bottom line. (laughs) All right. 495 yards of offense. So that's good. Almost 500 yards there. So 215 rushing, 280 passing. That's 6.8 passing and 7.2 yards per rush. So fairly efficient, effective in, in the yardage numbers there. Yeah, but, seven seven point two yards per rush is again, that's the dream day for yeah. an ABR offense. So and about even, I think if Billy if you just looked at gave him that stat line, he'd be like, Great, perfect. He would much he would like to be much better on third down. He would. Obviously. And in fairness to Billy, we talked about this a lot last year. He doesn't want to be at six point eight passing, by the way. He doesn't want to be there. In fact, in Billy's dreamline, he's like eleven or twelve. Mm-hmm per passing average. So it's important to note that Billy's offense, just for one sentence here, the actual goal coming in is he wants to have a really good rushing attack with zone and gap. And he wants to hit you with vertical passes. That just vertical passing, but it's not happened at Florida. Right. But that is the goal. He's not trying to actually, in his theory, be a pedestrian, you know, West coast offense where his average target throw depth is like two yards. Last year we were amongst the top in the country at throw depth. We weren't completing them. 
And this year, for a variety of reasons, we we have been unable to do it. So anyway, you do not want to see 6.8 yards per pass in a game. That is not a recipe for success. When you are running at a 7.2 yards per rush clip, that illustrates the struggles that Florida's having. Sure, that's good. And what I meant was those yardage splits between passing and rushing is probably fine by him. Uh, oh yeah overall total and that's why we like to break down the the per play because yep. you're right if you just look at the splits oh that's great we're a little more almost the 250 250 mythical urban meyer number but yep. when you break it down to how you're generating that very inefficient passing unbelievably efficient rushing so you know you're not actually balanced despite the yardage looking that way. Uh, they're one point. for one on fourth down they did allow three sacks five tackles for loss mertz again this completion rate is like extremely high, but it's like a cartoon at this point, right? But a lot of pop passes, a lot of behind the line of scrimmage. So he's thirty of thirty six for three TDs. Uh, Travis Etienne didn't. Or excuse me, Trevor Etienne. I cannot shake that. You're not the uh, only one. No, <laughs> it's too close. Etienne, so family. close, it's too it's, close, it's brutal. All right, does not play in this game, um, which is very significant. I think considering uh, all the rest of the numbers, Montreal Johnson, eighteen carries, one thirty five and a TD. He looked really nice in this game. Ricky. Four receptions, 34 yards. But here are the, the big numbers here. Uh, Trey Wilson, eight receptions for 64 yards and a touchdown. And our boy, Arliss Boardingham, who we talked about, we haven't really seen much of, has just a breakout day. Seven receptions, 99 yards, so two TDs. I mean, essentially 100 yards and two touchdowns is a f- phenomenal day for anybody. To get it out of a freshman, redshirt freshman tight end is kind of amazing, honestly. So here's here's what I want to point out. I have an exclamation point. Arliss, exclamation point. The offense does look significantly better with uh, with Trey Wilson and Arliss Boardingham. You know, we've been critical of the idea that if you just get the right players in here, that will solve all of your problems. But I will say when you have these depleted units, if you have a guy like Trey Wilson and you have a guy like Arliss Boardingham, like if you imagine the – the I don't know whatever the war is you know wins above replacement between Jonathan Odom and Arliss Boardingham in terms of route running and running after the catch is really high now again there's a different coefficient there when you're talking about blocking and other things but as a receiver he's a big improvement who've been running out there and it looked more dynamic because there was a chance you take these plays that are you know for Trey it's like a little sweep or a, or even throwing a outlet pass you know, behind the sticks. And all of a sudden he's picking up 12 yards because he's so fast. And Arliss after the catch, that made a big deal on a couple of those plays, a big conversion at one point. So I think it's better. The question is how much better is the offense with these two guys? And maybe if you bring back ETN, you know? Yeah, that's the question. And I think the answer is it's better, but it's, it's marginal at this stage of the Florida offense. I guess it's worth spending a second talking about, um, what gets talked a lot about is there's like a dividing line. People will get frustrated. If we ran the same offense and we had elite talent, we would be elite. To which I would say, no, we would not be elite. The offense still offers too low of a margin for error. We would be much better though. Much better. That gets lost sometimes. Right? We're, when we On this podcast, we always talk about things from a championship lens and only that. So when we say things like, we don't think Billy is cut out to be an OC at this level. It's not that he couldn't become an above-average production-based stat guy at UF if he had better talent, but better talent is not what we're looking at. We're imagining a world where he's facing teams with equal talent, and that's where the coaching makes a difference. That is the point, right? 
Talent makes a significant difference when you're much more talented than your opponents. You'll probably win even if you, the listener, are coaching. You don't know a lot. If you're enough right, of, of a more talented team, you'll just win. But that shrinks to when you're equal or you're slightly deficient, the coaching, the scheme will make up the difference. So that's why I think what Kirby said is right. It is 75% player talent and 25% coaching. I think that's accurate. You have to have both of those. You cannot have one without the other. Both must be there. And oftentimes we polarize it to where, oh, see, you would think if you just had this great scheme, you'll win. No. Well, if you just have the best players, you'll win. No. You do have to have both. And there are lots of different ways to run offense. So anyway, to your point, Alan, yeah, the offense is definitely much more dangerous when the defense respects a guy like Trey running east-west versus them. It opens up zone running lanes. It opens up backside plays. It opens up the tight end. Because now they're focused on that. Because no team wants to allow a 7.2 yards per rush against them. You've got to stop that first. So they commit extra guys in the box. And now your athletic tight end is out on easy, safe throws. It's a good recipe for offense, uh, obviously, in that regard. And Florida benefited in this game from that. So now we've seen it twice with Trey, where the offense has looked the best with him. And that is because he's perfect for that role. Lastly, I do think, as we've said a lot, Billy has a really good idea of the kind of player he wants to have in his system. And it seems like Coach Ham does too, at least already with what he has on paper. Now, he didn't select these guys, right? But looking at who Florida's going after and who they combine together in the secondary. So it's scheme that you have, talent fitting into your scheme, all of it coming together. Big, huge bright side here with neon lights and we keep saying this, the guys that Billy are selecting for these roles are vastly better than the parts that he inherited to work with. And that is a very good sign. It's one reason why we continue to be positive about Florida's program overall. So there you go. That's kind of a nice little snapshot of just in general how you view these things. But yeah, to your point, Alan, the offense is definitely more dangerous when you have better players at these positions. So some of the routes that Arliss was running, some of them were just some of the check downs. But he turns upfield and makes something out of it. Absolutely. It's faster upfield. There were also some times where he ran a nice route and merged him with a nice ball for a decent chunk. And it's great because last week, right, he had that ball go off his hands mm-hmm. for a, a pick that changed part of the game. And then yeah. he also ran short of the sticks on a play on fourth down. So this was a nice turnaround for him. For sure. And Billy made it a point to you know, say that he didn't play tight end in high school, which is not that uncommon for a guy – you know, you, he's probably the best player on your team. You're going to have him play receiver, defensive end or something. But the next level, he could be a guy at tight end. So he's still learning how to play his position. So to get this kind of output for him and really his first season, he's a you know, redshirt freshman. But that's excellent. I think that's good coaching. That's good development by him. You know, there's there's been a lot of question marks about him. You know, the staff was high on him. You hear good things and you hear like not good things and – so for him to have a good performance, I think that that will help this offense a ton if he can continue to put anywhere near this kind of production on Saturdays. All right, it felt more creative to me early on, right? So that there was some stuff going on either schematically in the run game. This could just be anecdotal, or did you would you agree with that? Is that reality? I would say it's... If you, in the run game, I think it, it just was that the defense was shifting really hard on the jet sweeps by Trey. And that allows you to look more creative because when your play fake is an actual fake that gets the defense flowing one way, then you're gashing them. 
And if I could put an overlay of, of Ricky running that jet sweep versus Trey, and I can show you how many defenders move with Trey, you will see why the magic of all the creativity, if you will, okay. is all of a sudden there. I say all this to say I was more impressed with Florida's rushing attack, Allen, because Vanderbilt was a competent rushing defense. As a reminder, their success rate, 48th on standard downs, but 48th on rushing plays of any kind. They were competent. Their major Achilles heel is their passing down and passing plays terrible. They're in the hundreds. And so that's why it's like, okay, well, it's not a surprise if Arliss gets open and does stuff versus Vanderbilt. They are absolutely a, a sieve back there. But the rushing attack was nice. And to your point, I think at this point in time, it would be foolish for us not to just give almost all of the credit to Trey for that. Because hmm. we've seen it twice. He's been in there twice. And both times, Florida comes out and they're like averaging eight yards a carry. And the defense is flowing in the wrong way. And it gets coordinators worried about stopping a nine-yard carry on a little jet pop pass. And they freak out and boom, back door. For a guy like Montrell, who we talked about, is an excellent vision runner. And now if Florida's winning up front early, he maximizes those plays. So everything is clicking the way Billy would want it to happen. And to your point early, uh, you saw some of that happening. But I think that's really to be super reductive, largely due to one guy who's dangerous enough getting the ball in his hands that teams have to key on him. And that is the effect also of one Tyreek Hill in the NFL. The Dolphins do a lot off the fact that Tyreek Hill is the guy you have to know where he is at all times. And they eye candy him in the backfield to get other guys open. And obviously Florida's using Trey in a very babied version of that. But same idea. Yeah, and I'll say, yeah, credit. I, I agree with that assessment, actually, um, in the big picture. I did like the stuff that we were running. Um, it just works better with him. And then give some credit to... Slaughter and Lindell Hudson playing in this game because the left side, there were some big holes as we would run left. We typically run left and we didn't go away from that just because we were missing Barber and Kingsley. So they did a nice job. And then again, Montreal Johnson, we've been saying ETN needs to be the guy. He needs to be the guy because of where our offense is at. But in the right context, he's going to be extremely effective. He's just not the home run hitter that ETN is. And that's kind of what we need right now. Okay. Let me move over to Graham Mertz here. Uh, we've talked a lot that the Florida's passing struggles, and I wouldn't lay them at the feet of Graham Mertz, right? That often there's not enough protection. The, the receivers aren't open in time. The plays are too slow developing. There's a lot of things you wouldn't just say, oh, we're not throwing downfield because Graham Mertz isn't playing quarterback well enough. Um, but I would say in evaluating him, him in this game, he made a lot of good decisions. He made a lot of good throws. But there were a few throws down the field that he missed, right, with two open guys. And it felt like he just didn't cut loose on some throws where he had guys open and could have made the throw. And, again, that, that's like small margin of error. And so we've been reluctant to say he needs to do that more, right? You can't, you can't expect him to take advantage of every opportunity for your offense to be explosive. But it felt maybe in this game for maybe it's just an accumulation of, hey, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. But he could have let loose on some more of these throws. He could have for sure. And in fact, here's a big takeaway uh, for everyone on film in this game. This was the best game in the Billy Napier era that I have seen when it came to passing design. Now, there weren't not every play was amazing, right? But there were at least five to six plays that displayed things I have not seen on film in the Napier era. 
Uh, we ran route combinations that made sense. We ran rubs on man for vertical home runs. We ran post corners with Ricky in the middle of the field versus single high safety looks where he was going to get one-on-one coverage because of our pre-snap motion. We hit on none of them, but they were there and guys were open. And you guys hear me talk a lot about like, there's not people open. It's very frustrating. And we miss them due to a combination of the offensive line at times, just allowing guys in right away and Mertz. Now on film review each week, we talk about the ceiling shot as a quarterback. Every quarterback looks, what did I miss? What could I have done better? That doesn't mean that you expect your quarterback to hit those things. Right. That's an important thing. A lot of Good times on film review, people get sensitive and think, yeah, but that's hindsight. Yes, that's what a quarterback does when he's watching the film too to make sure he can maximize his ops. But in this particular game, this one was the most egregious where he had multiple opportunities to get the ball out on time into big spaces, empty grass to put the ball to, and he did not do it. Uh, we've seen what I would call troubling if there was more data and more opportunities for Mertz. I'm not going to call it that because it's been too limited for him to have these looks. But let's say we saw this 50 times this year instead of 10 times. I would say it's troubling that he's not throwing these balls on time when there are big spaces to hit. Instead, he often pulls the ball, runs out, goes somewhere else. He needs to stay with the play, which we've discussed. And in fact, Billy, for the first time in the Mertz era, alluded to this. By essentially saying he was didn't use the word frustrated, but he was frustrated that Mertz was hanging on to the ball too long. And he said that he's hanging on to the ball too long. And he's totally right. There were actually plays in this game Florida could have hit, which one excites me. I want to see that again. Yeah. It's really important. Like I am rooting for Billy Napier in every possible way that I can, right? We do the podcast as we love Florida. I want them to win, whatever it takes. And right now, as long as we have Billy as the OC, I want him to create passing concepts that work and win no matter how we do it. So in this game, we had chances. We didn't get him. Partially O-line, but also partially Mertz. A lot for him to look at here, challenge himself, and get better this week because we have, as we keep saying, we have got to get production on the vertical passing game in some way, shape, or form. And if teams keep seeing a guy at quarterback who either has an O-line that allows a huge sack on a first down play action, which Florida does, or he just doesn't hit them, they're going to feel totally confident that they don't have to worry about the back-end passing game and they can play downhill in run fit aggressively. So we're going to have to make some of these plays, but you're absolutely right, Alan Mertz. In this game, I think it was his worst game as a vertical passer, as a Gator, because he had the most real opportunities and we didn't hit a single one. Yeah, and I think that's probably frustrating for the whole staff if you feel like you scheme it up in the right moments and you don't take advantage for whatever reason, whether the offensive line doesn't hold its blocks long enough or the quarterback just doesn't see it. And again, no, if you're expecting perfection from the quarterback, you're not going to get that but there are more opportunities there. So in some ways that's encouraging. In some ways that's like, oh man, we had the opportunities that we didn't hit really any of them. And that's what's nice. That 28 air yard number I led with, the nice part is it easily could have been 200 air yards. That I, I, That's not been something I could have said before. It wasn't even possible. It was possible in this game. And in fact, they were going for it on multiple occasions. Didn't happen. A combination of the reasons we gave you resulting in an average throw depth of two yards. We already know that Mertz is insanely comfortable throwing two yards and, and behind the LOS. But again, the huge question mark for this offense, I don't care how you do it or who's coordinating it for this year, how it happens. If we do not find ways to complete these passes, Alan, these coin flip games are not going to go our way. We have got to hit them. I was happy to see that there were some route combinations that were really solid on film this week. And maybe we can connect on some versus South Carolina. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, were those Mertz's air yards? Because uh, Khalil Jackson had some air yards. He did, that and that was play. a that was a 
really nice play. Yeah. Obviously, I love flag football. Y'all know that. Some of you like to troll me for that, but uh, that's a great play. He's wide open. Billy even mentioned that. I mean, he's yeah, yeah. wide open. And, you know, as receivers do, when you don't get a chance to throw it often, you kind of see how open he is and you float it up there forever. Puts a confident ball on him there. It's an Also, you know, play. we highlighted him. Who, who makes the play? They're everything safety Taylor. Yes. Comes all the way across the field. And make all the play. way across the field. Tra- I mean, which is, again, that that dude is all over the place. He is their player. But, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an easy shot play. If, if you're frustrated with that that play call there, you should not be. That resulted in a wide open Florida receiver and just a missed play. That's that's a player execution thing. Yeah, I loved uh, it, actually. I thought it was great. I, and, again, Florida needs to do more of that so that teams have to respect some vertical passing threat, whatever it takes. So I was pleased. I was pleased to see that it looked like Florida made a real attempt this week to try to do something different than what we've seen them do. Okay, we talked about this some, but this was highlighted again for me. We are not nearly aggressive enough on second and short. Uh, I think there's one time we did drop back and took a sack on a second and one, but often we ran the ball in second and one. Now we picked it up, and previously we've been actually pretty bad in short yardage, either third and one. So I think you get you get kind of like, oh man, I don't I'm not confident that we're going to pick this up on third and one. So you're even more tempted to run it on second and one. But if you want explosive plays, part of that is contextualizing when do you do that? When do you make those calls? When do you do play action and take a shot down the field, or you just line up and throw it down the field on a run fake? Yes, I. this team even more so needs to do that because they're struggling to get guys open down the field and have their quarterback recognize it. So if you can give them more time because the teams have to respect our true play action. And Mertz does a good job selling some of these fakes. It's there if you want it more often probably than you're taking it. Yeah, amen. Preach on, right? The highest EV football is the right way to play. That's what you do, and that factors in your personnel the type of team and quarterback you have, the opponent you're playing. A lot goes into that. We've talked about meta strategy before on this show, exploitative strategy. Of course, the meta strat in general is take the highest EV play. If there's a bunch of guys in the box, it's second and one. They don't respect your passing game. That is the best chance to pass. You take advantage of that. It's also the least risky time to pass because then you have a third and one where, again, you should take the highest EV play yet again. If you keep doing that, eventually you're going to have big plays, chunk yardage, and success. And, and as much as I was excited to see some positive design, with some route combinations, the the same old, same old for the offense was generally true, right? If I put this in a one-sentence nutshell, it's we pretty much got what we expected from the offense with the nice little upside that we actually had some better play design, but a lot of the tendencies were still there. A lot of the conservatism was still there. A lot of the two-downer mentalities, the same stuff is there. It wasn't like, wow, this is a different scenario. Let's get excited about it. But any amount of change that you see is great, and I think it does indicate Something we've seen about Billy, we hope to be true about Billy, is that he is not stuck in his ways. He's a guy who talks about evaluating everything, and I think he means it every offseason. He looks at seriously changing things. That's nice. And maybe Allen, you know, a guy we haven't talked a lot about on the pod yet, but obviously Russ Calloway, tight ends coach, is an air raid guy. He's from the air raid school. By all accounts, he knows a ton about air raid. Um, uh, an expert as a young guy, if you will, on air raid. And of course, he has to, I mean, air raid is not rocket science, right? Maybe I'm completely speculating, but maybe he's getting some small voice, at least in game planning to say, why don't we try some of these other concepts? Perhaps, maybe I have no idea if it's true or not, but he'd be the only one on the offensive staff that would even have any cachet to suggest something like that. He's an FCS guy, but again, a guy, if you look up his bio 
who people respect as a, as a very competent air raid passing mind. So no idea, but regardless, um, yeah, the second and one stuff, you're right, Alan. We know we don't have a good offense. We need to be more aggressive when we get opportunities with favorable looks to hit them big because we can't naturally do it. It's a great point by you. All right. Anything else you want to note about the offense before we move on? No, that was it. Most is expected. Don't get too excited from this game. Be lightly hopeful that we saw some good new design. But this week versus another bad defense on the road will will go a long way towards Florida improving actually as an offense simply because it's a road game. All right. The Florida defense, some very nice statistics. I'm about to throw at you for a couple of these here. Uh, One for 10 on third down for Vanderbilt. And 0 for 3 on fourth down. Those fourth downs, you know, depending on when they are in the game and when they happen, are actually huge. I mean, Billy talked about this as considering those turnovers, which can be true. Like if it's the end of half thing or end of game, whatever. But yeah, if you're getting stops in those scenarios, that is really key. So Vanderbilt had 340 yards total, 276 passing. So a nice day there. 64 yards rushing. That's only 3.0 yards per rush. Gators had five sacks, or excuse me, two sacks. They produced five punts and six tackles for loss. Uh, so Ken Seals did play instead of A.J. Swan. Right. At quarterback. That's so correct. that was a coaching decision, not an injury choice, I'm fairly sure. I think those two guys are they're pretty interchangeable. Roughly similar. Yeah, you don't get a significantly different game plan with them. Right. So Defense looked nice again outside a couple of plays here. So my thesis here that the defense returned to normal, quote unquote, like their status quo, which is a good thing, especially in the run game. And it seemed like they were snuffing out a ton of the short stuff that Vanderbilt wanted to do and the East-West stuff that there was often just nowhere to go. They had, you know, been alerted to what Vanderbilt wanted to do, had the right uh, coverages in effect, we're stopping the run game to little to no impact. So in that short stuff, either running or passing, they did a phenomenal job. Yeah, they did. And that was what we expected. We've seen that from them. We saw them whiff on Kentucky, despite being in good position, especially early on in this game. They did not. Uh, they they did, as you said, they did that job very well. And I called this on film generally a return to what we expect. I say generally because it is right to expect this team to blow some assignments and pass coverage still which they did. And I want to spend just a minute talking about why this is difficult. So if you played high school football, you probably had a very basic scheme, typically something like cover three. You had a corner who was either going to drop and be a third safety with your other corner. He was going to play man in front of the guy in front of him. And your linebackers may have played like a, a like the flat or a curl or something, right? And that's maybe as complicated as you got. If you went to a really good high school, you might've done some man matching or pattern matching, but basic stuff, maybe three installs on that where you had to signal if they lined up in a trips or a stack or something, right? For these guys and for Armstrong, he's very much like a Saban or a Kirby. It's very complicated. So what that means is when there's a motion across the field and you go from, let's say a two by two set. So two receivers on one side, two on the other side to make it a three by one set, three receivers on one side, one on the other. It totally changes the rules for the entire defense because Florida plays generally a split safety. There's two safeties out there, which means they're splitting the field in half and playing two different types of coverage on either side of the field. So that is way more complicated, way more complicated. than other type of strategies. What that also means is within that, there's probably eight to 10, there's hundreds of names for these, but eight to 10 general 
tactics you can use where you can have your corner perhaps let an inside breaking route go and he makes a call to your apex defender which is typically your nickel or you know the next guy next to him and then he can either follow him or let him go and you can choose who carries who vertically you can invert your safety in your corner there's a lot of stuff you can do but all these things have to happen with hand signals which you'll see the gators doing in less than a second or second and a half when the motion comes across it's very complicated which that means is you have to have all of your back end typically seven, maybe eight guys on the same page when a motion occurs or when a shift occurs or when a tight end starts on the end and then unattaches himself. There's a lot of stuff that's happening. It's not just, Alan, that's your man. Sometimes it is. That's easy. It's generally not that. And so to get everyone doing the right thing and working together with a defense that is largely playing together for the first time with two freshman safeties back there is really hard. So it should not surprise any of us in the film to see that about five or six times in this game, Florida just got it wrong. They had two guys doing the same assignment, which is not supposed to happen. But again, that's going to happen. We're in year one of this install, year one of this terminology, year one of doing it really well. What's remarkable, lastly, is how well this defense actually does that stuff. And yes, we ran a split safety last year. We were running nothing the level of complexity the team is running this year. Way more compl- uh, complex with regards to how, how well Florida operates it with the split safety, uh, bringing safeties down in the box, who's in run fit, who's not. I mean, it's it's remarkable. That's why I keep raving about it. But again, on film, you see that. That's still there. Vanderbilt had more opportunities in the passing game. They had guys that were open in large part because Florida was their own worst enemy, missing some assignments. But in college football versus opponents that are also with, you know, are not, perfect either you hope to dodge a few of them and florida largely did so there's there's a comment there so generally we return to what we expect from the defense pretty daggone good defense especially from a unit at this stage yes i wanted to highlight that that is a high degree of difficulty in general but a much higher degree of difficulty when you're playing two true freshmen at safety which is crazy That's that is easy. really hard super hard and then you're also playing a lot of freshman rotation guys and some of those guys are not just asking them to straight up rush the pass. You're asking them to drop in coverage. You're asking them to uh, do different things along the defensive line, line up in different spots. Some of them are playing two different positions along the defensive line. So you're asking a lot of those guys. So I think that that whoever you want to attribute this to, probably a varying amount of people should get credit for that. Austin Armstrong, but I'm sure the position coaches as well. Whatever they're doing is working getting those guys to do largely what they're supposed to be doing. Okay. And I, I think uh, we could probably talk about that every week and highlight that every week because right. it's really tough. It's tough, tough in college in general. Mm-hmm. Right. And for this team, I think especially, okay. Florida has given up a decent amount of big plays. When teams have scored, generally it's been on a explosive play. You can think about the touchdown at Utah, but really both touchdowns at Utah were explosive plays. Uh, Tennessee hit them really quick for two different scores. Vanderbilt had two big plays. One did not result in a score. Uh, so if you look at Austin Armstrong's history as well, you could you could probably find some data in there that would support this. Are you concerned about the, maybe Austin Armstrong's history or even just Florida's current history of giving up some big plays in the passing game? This is a great question. And one, the same thing that we had talked about earlier, am I concerned that Florida's not getting enough sacks? Well, given our personnel, no. But also, am I concerned that Florida's not generating enough turnovers? No. Why? All that I care about on defense 
all that I care about is largely reflected in the success rate, which essentially is how many yards per play are you giving up? Therefore, how successful are you in rushing downs, passing downs, third downs? Because if the team is getting off the field and you're stopping them, and Florida's defense is generally stopping teams six to nine times a game, you're a good defense. So here's the question for you, Alan. Assume Vanderbilt scored twice in this game. And instead of those lightning quick drives, they scored on 12 page, twelve play drives each time. Is that different? Is that better? Probably worse. Probably worse. Why? Because your offense, if you're possessing the ball, actually keeps them off the field longer. But most importantly, it doesn't really matter. Teams are going to score. What matters then is what kind of defense do you want to be? The reason I love Coach Ham's defense is we are aggressive. The reason at Southern Miss and at Florida, he's perhaps giving up more explosive plays than he would at Georgia is we don't yet have all 11 guys who have been A, in his program for a long time, but B, at Southern Miss, especially when you're playing this kind of defense, you're asking your guys to play man. You're oftentimes rotating into a one high look where you're trusting your guys to play. If you play man, you will give teams a lower completion percentage, but you will also give them a more explosive play rate. It is a trade-off. If you play Mark Stoops defense, which I hate, you guys have all heard me talk about it. I hate that defense. Keep everything in front of you. Play super soft and vanilla. I hate it. Then eventually you get crushed by a team that's better than you because you can't win that way. You have to be willing to come up to the line of scrimmage and deny people. And the risk of that is they're going to get you sometimes over the top. So I think, no, I don't care that that's the case. He could be number one in explosive plays given up for all I care. If you're a top five defense and you're allowing one of the fewest points per game, do you care? No. Great. I'll give up two huge explosive plays every game for touchdowns. And if you score 14, that's all you score, Alan. How many championships are you going to win? If Georgia holds teams to 14 or under, how many games are they going to win? So I don't really care how you score, especially lastly, given how solid the structure of the defense is. There's almost always an excellent reason why that team scored on us. Jason Marshall, simple example. Why'd that happen? He got face masked into oblivion. Call was not made. And then he inexplicably just quit. Which you can't do if you're Jason Marshall. You can't, right? You can't trust the refs to do the right thing. You got to keep going. It was unbelievably egregious, but that's 85 yards and that's an explosive play for them. And it's absurd. I mean, the guy was taking his head off. Am I okay with that? Yeah. Especially because we're in a man to man look where no one is open. That's great. I don't care. I love that. Much better than us sitting in too high, sitting back, letting Vanderbilt complete a million routes like we saw before Grantham, we've seen with Tony. So, end my rant on this. I'm not worried about it unless Florida's success rate also falls, their third down success rate also falls, and now they're a bad defense. But that's not true. So yeah, some guys are going to gouge us the big plays. I don't really care. Your defense is not going to shut everyone out. What matters to me is the overall success rate of your defense. There are different ways to get there. Much rather be an aggressive defense. And that's what Armstrong wants to be, and I love that. I would wholeheartedly agree. You So you have different reactions as a fan, Right, So if a team is marching down the field methodically, it will suck the life out of you. But a quick strike will put fear in you because that could happen at any time. Right, The, the slow bleed you to death, it, you can kind of contain that if you have a big lead. And you could say, okay, well, they're not going to do this. They're not going to score three times in 20 seconds. The reason the Tennessee game always felt kind of scary because the times they did score – we're so fast. If like they can, if they can figure out how to do that again, they're going to score like four more times. But defensively, right, most of the time you're shutting them down for negative plays. You're causing a lot of, you know, uh, havoc. You know, there's a, there's actually a stack of like havoc rate. Like, what are you doing to disrupt what they're doing? 
So there's a lot of disruption going on, even if you are giving up some big plays, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're in, you know, 85 Bears defense going up against a Vanderbilt offense, right? And we're not there yet. Let me go back to Jason Marshall. So there's two sides of the coin here. I feel like people are either falling in one camp or the other. They want to either, uh, you know, cut Jason Marshall and have him bench forever or say, no, this is not his fault. But I think you highlight, I think both things are true. One, the completion happens because in large part that he gets his face mask pulled down. But if you're the coaching staff, you have to say to him, it doesn't matter. This is like an NBA player looking for a foul while the guy runs the other way for a layup. Do not worry about that. You're not affect. You're not affecting the game at all by looking at the referee and putting your hands up. You know, get on your horse and go after that guy. Maybe he still scores, but you look terrible doing that, right? No matter what happens to you on that on the play. And I think when you put that in combination of what else has happened on film for him this year, people flip out. If he'd been perfect all year, people would probably go. You know what? Whatever. A weird play. Hey, Jason, don't react like that. You're fine. But in combination with what else we've seen, him being disinterested at times in other facets of the game, it's just not a good look when you combine that with all the other stuff. Yeah, he's not playing up to his potential right now as we've highlighted. He made some nice plays in this he did. game at times. He did, actually. And it's a mixed bag. So I think on the on the, on the the film review, we keep saying what it is. It's not like we're like, this guy's you know playing horribly, but he's not playing up to a first-round Potential. Right, so and, I think you have to contextualize that. If we're right. we're thinking that he's up here, if he was, that's right. if you were expecting him to be trash, oh, he's playing pretty well. Yeah, he's he's fine, but he can be better than that. But most importantly, I think if I'm coach, I tell Jason Marshall three things. One, you're right. That's an inju- an injustice was committed against you. Facts. You are correct. Your reaction in your mind is correct. They need to call that. But then you have to accept the injustice and limit the damage because there are humans refereeing this game and they might miss something. And you will still be right when you complain to the ref. And the ref may even know that he was wrong. But since there is not a time machine and a reversal of a call for that kind of penalty, a 20-yard gain is a lot better than a touchdown. So that's the message I want to get across to Jason Marshall. Yeah, you're totally right. I get it. You have every reason to feel like you totally had an injustice committed against you. But you also have to fight through the injustice, limit the play. And then when the play's over, go plead your case with the ref, right? And let him know, hey, watch this guy. He pulled my head off. You missed it. Let's get it right next time. And then you look like the professional. That's what pros do, right? They fight through bad calls. They fight through fouls because they cannot allow themselves to just quit on the play when they they decide they're the referee. And again, I don't want to come down too heavily on this, but I think what it looks like is you're more concerned with your performance than the outcome, right? So if you're an NBA player and you're like, oh, I'm looking for my foul, well, you're letting the other team score, right? Don't, I, I think for all people in athletic competition, like, what you said, you're right. Even if you you got beat on the play because he's well, you didn't get beat, you got fouled. You know, to use that NBA terminology, you got to keep going. Okay, enough Jason Marshall talk there. This is almost a meme for Florida guard tackle counterplays. Right, we talked got gashed by Kentucky in part of the Kentucky game. We said that Vanderbilt runs this. We're gonna see it. Well. I can't remember a successful Vanderbilt guard tackle counter. They ran it some, but it didn't go very well. Correct? Correct. Yeah, they tried. Uh, they tried. It'll be on the film review. We we diagnosed several different types they tried. Obviously, Vanderbilt, not nearly as competent no. running as Kentucky. But also, I think what you wanted to see on film was Florida was reading it so much faster 
They had a much better understanding of what they were supposed to do. And this is what film review does, right? This is why you watch film as a player is you see, oh, this is what I did wrong. And your coaches tell you, here's how you fix this next time. And then the next time you see it, you implement what you know. And so Florida was much more confident when they saw those, either with a trap, whether it was a power run or whether it was any kind of counter run, this is a counter. I know my job is to blow this gap up and this gap, whether it be squeezing it or spilling it, but they were very aggressive striking the blocks and multiple times the counter puller never even got to the gap because Florida was obliterating the lead player or whoever was supposed to be getting there. They were also getting into the backfield penetration when they saw that, recognizing my job here is to just push this guy back into the lane and slow it down. So hats off again to the staff for fixing something, which we said we thought they were going to fix that. Now the question is what happens versus Georgia or a team that has much more talent than Vanderbilt? At least we know Florida knows what to do. Right. And if the players can't execute it because they're not as talented or as big, then that's fine. But you want to make sure that everyone knows exactly how to handle that. So big fat check mark for seeing it immediately the next week versus an inferior opponent and doing a very nice job on film of recognizing what the play was and stopping it correctly. I think it's great news because even if Vanderbilt isn't that talented, if you're terrible at it, they will still get you. They are still D1 players right, who can do competent things on offense, right? If you have no idea how to stop it, it will affect you. It will show up some. It didn't show up at all. They were basically zero in the run game. And, yeah, I think that shows that this isn't just a thing that Florida will deal with in perpetuity, but they were able to fix it. Now, they will get probed with it in every game. Every it's team's really, going to run it's, Look, it's really, we said before, the reason that counter runs exist and are still a run play that people will run forever in football is right. it's a good run play. It is. It is not easy to stop it. If you slightly guess wrong or the offense gets a really good double team at the point of attack and they're able to get the second level, I mean, it's going to gain yards in the NFL or elsewhere. Even in the NFL, when players read it correctly right away. So you can't expect like, well, next game I watched, I saw they got 12 yards on a counter run. Yeah, that's going to happen. But if you can be more successful than they are, then you can put them in third down more often than they are getting first downs from it. And that's the name of the game. Also right. limit, you know, huge touchdowns from run plays in general is a good strategy for success. It is a good strategy. So I, I think, yes, not that you, you won't ever see teams run. Obviously teams have offensive success. Even the worst teams uh, doesn't mean you're doing things wrong necessarily. You can get blocked. Things happen. Uh, but Luckily for Florida, Vanderbilt does not have Ray Davis on the team anymore, the greatest running back of all time. So, yes, the, the tackling was cleaner as well. Barely any missed tackles in this game. And again, Florida's amongst the best in the SEC at tackle rate, right. even including the Kentucky debacle. So more more stats to indicate that was really a one-time thing to that extreme of a level. Okay, Anything else to note about the defense? Yeah, for sure. One, we talked about the safety who started as Bryce Thornton, a true mm-hmm. freshman. Uh, we talked about the difficulty of, that safeties will have. Now, safety's jobs are a little easier um, than than a linebacker's job or a, a nickel. And that's another thing. The further you are away from the ball, the easier your job is, right? And it's important to know that's why it's really hard for slots to play, like slot defenders. They have a million different rules they have to follow. And they're also often involved in run fit. Florida generally involves one of their safeties in run fit too. So what that means is on any given play, depending on how those guys move pre-snap, Bryce Thornton has to know when he's involved in run fit and which gap he's responsible for. And as a last note here, Alan, there are six gaps in the field you must protect. If you look at the center and you look left, there's an A, B, and a C. 
and you look right, there's an A, B, and a C. There are six gaps, and every single play, each player knows which gap they're responsible for. That's why we say if you have a seven-man box, you're plus one in the run game. You have an extra defender. You can commit either to just be a read defender. He picks whichever gap they think the guy's going, or a tendency defender. We're going to just shoot him through the B gap because we think this play's going there. Uh, but that's why seven-man boxes are heavy, so on and so forth. So there's a lot on his plate. He's not just back there splitting the field in half. Saying, oh, yeah, it's cool. I'm guarding half this field. I'm a safety valve. He's got a lot of stuff on his plate. So two true freshmen. Amazing. Princely was a monster in this game on film. Probably his best game as a Gator. I mean, he was in the backfield every which way, almost every single play. He was in the backfield getting held on every single play. I mean, he was absolutely sensational on film in this game. Uh, Amazing. Kind of a guy, I feel like, again, who's unfortunately not getting a lot of stat-stuffing results. In large part because Florida does not have a pass rusher opposite him, which they would have had with Boone, but fantastic. And then a couple stats for you. One, we hit uh, Vanderbilt at the line 47% of the time. Kentucky, we hit in the low 20s. We generally hit at 50%. So this is a return to normal, as we talked about. Uh, we played man 37% of the time. Kentucky, I mean, not Kentucky, Vanderbilt had one completion. Great work there in man. That completion was for a touchdown, basically, uh, because of the Jason Marshall play. Secondarily, one thing that I have a qualm about here, we mentioned on the pod, Alan, that Vanderbilt was extremely oddly good versus five-man pressures and that we should not bring any five-man pressures. We should only bring a six-man pressure. Florida brought one six-man pressure. They were 0 for 1. Florida brought seven five-man pressures where Vanderbilt was 6 for 7 for 123 yards and that one touchdown. That's kind of wild, actually. So that, that's, you know, they really would have been probably, let's call it 5 for 7 for like maybe 65 yards because again the jason marshall play but it is still wild they are actually excellent at five-man pressures uh, and i'm sure armstrong just thought whatever like they haven't faced a team like ours will run it but sometimes it's worth looking at the data and saying maybe we'll start with something different or maybe we'll start with our base one time and see what happens but vandy continues to be oddly really good at that and you mentioned his position i wanted to give a shout out to Jaden hill here just a star at star. Phenomenal. I mean, erased a couple of plays. There's a large part of the game where you don't notice him because he's just doing his job. So solid. And that's been a revelation. That could have been a gigantic hole for this team considering Perkins leaves in the middle of the year. You don't have an incumbent in the spot. Everybody else who would potentially play this position is a freshman or a redshirt freshman. And he's been phenomenal. So. Huge. And again, he has the most complicated mental position on the entire defense. He's often in run fit. If he's not in run fit, he has multiple rules to follow with how he's covering. Uh, he has maybe the hardest job on the entire defense when it comes to thinking. And he was not a slot before where we moved him from corner into slot. That means excellent coaching and it means excellent work by the player to learn that position. And for us, it results in excellence at that position that we have not seen since Chauncey. We begged for it, asked for it, wanted it. And yeah, great highlighting him there, Alan. He's been, as you said, a revelation for Florida's defense there. All right, you ready to talk special teams? Let's do it. Okay, Trace Mack, nice job by him. Five extra points, one for one in the field goal. Crawshaw, you know, I think he's looking like the player he was last year. It makes some of the early games look more like an aberration. Very nice day playing the ball. And also, we send, as you made this comment, it feels like every punter crushes us their guy is just good overall but he was killing us it's unreal really it is it is the thing right now 
I mean, dropping punts inside you know, the 10. We were supposed to have good field position. He boots like a 60-yarder that they cover. It was crazy. All right. Here's what I'll say, though. It feels like there was an improvement on special teams, right? If you're not just looking at the headline stats, like kicking percentage, like, you know, there weren't any real penalties. There were nothing I would say that we did poorly or even any real mistakes. I don't know if that means there's been a change in philosophy or operations. Just want to note, seemed like there was an improvement. felt like they played a cleaner game. They did. And again, we always want to note that, right? Our podcast is analytical and sometimes critical, but we're also perhaps sometimes people sleep on this fact, like extremely praiseworthy of the things that are good when they're good, because that's what we want to do. We really only want to be praiseworthy when we can be, but it's got to be earned. And, and the special teams earned it this week. They they looked like a competent, solid unit. And again, Trace Mack right now, you can make an argument is amongst the best kickers in college football a weapon. with his start out of the gate. I mean, rock solid, consistent here, shoring up a spot that Florida was not solid at. And Crawshaw, like you said, back to being what we thought was going to be a top five punter in the country. Make no mistake about it. All of those things are going to matter with these coin flippy games Florida's getting into. So, yeah, again, hats yeah, they- off to whoever and whatever happened with special teams that at least we're starting to see something different. We can only hope it continues and it's not just a one-time thing. So we talked about Florida having low margin for error. A shanked punt could lose you a game. And they, they, it mattered in some of those early losses. It, did. So it definitely did. Yes, you want Crawshaw to be a weapon rather than a liability. And again, that you're not punting that many times, so a couple shanks is like, it's a really noisy stat, but could just be meaningless in the long term. Okay, final thoughts here. I know we've talked about Vandy being bad, and they are bad defensively. But maybe I just have some residual hangover from losing to them last year under the Clark Lee era. But it feels like they're a more worthy measuring stick than Vandy teams of the past, right? They're not a they're not good, but they're not my sentiment is that they're not abysmal. So even though you should wipe the floor with them and if you're a good team, for a team like Florida to play well against them is still meaningful. Yeah, we covered the spread. A lot of people, we got some messages. Wow, both of both you and Alan had us scoring 30 points. That seems like a reach. So, you know, I think for some of you out there, perhaps this was a more impressive performance than you thought. I think for me, as you've heard me say, I, I do not view this year's edition of Vanderbilt as a measuring stick. And I think it would be very wise not to get excited over what just happened in this game, other than to be happy and celebrate the fact that we beat Vanderbilt, who we lost to last year, Alan. We looked competent, and we took care of business, and that we needed to beat this team like this. We didn't destroy them. It wasn't complete annihilation, but it was solid and competent. But again, don't look at this game like we have now turned the corner. What I want to say is don't do what the national media did last week. When we went on this podcast and said, I can't believe that the media is gushing about Kentucky. Because Kentucky, as we said, is not good. It's the same old Kentucky that we've seen before. They have major issues. People are anointing them some sort of SEC East contender. And they get slaughtered by a Georgia team that people thought was maybe soft and not ready. Right. So that's what I want to say. This game does not mean that now we're rolling into our next game. Oh, man, that's is it. We're ready. We've turned a corner like we're here. And also, lastly, this is football. If there's one gift I can give to all of you, it's watch more of the NFL. Your Jaguars beat the Bills, who looked like they were a juggernaut. 
Three weeks in a row, they're murdering NFL opponents. They kill the flavor of the month, the Dolphins. And then they go and they look anemic, downright anemic on offense for most of the game in London. They do not look put together. The Jags handle them. Does it mean the Bills suck? No, it's one football game. So I think no matter what, even in college, you always have to be careful that it's matchup-based. It's also one game. These are humans, not robots. You don't know what you're going to get from one to the other. I think we did a nice job trying to highlight things we thought were reproducible in future games, but those are small. That's what I want to say. Those are small takeaways, not like huge takeaway, boom, we're here. Very small takeaways. If anything, they're hopeful that maybe this will translate at some level. That's my takeaway from this. So Vandy, unfortunately, not, I think, something I would say, man, now we can feel good about this. Turn the page. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, I want to talk about how big the South Carolina game is, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the South Carolina segment. Okay, okay I love it. All right. A teaser. Let's talk about those week six results. Do we have to? Because you cleaned me I up. want to. You crushed me. Great job by you. All right, I went a very robust seven and three this week, bringing my record to 34 and 31. Congrats. That's a really yeah. nice record. Yeah. I just felt it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, <laughs> I don't have any rhyme or reason for this. Uh, you went... A less good three and seven, further lowering your record. What, what a week for me. My O's get smacked. I get smacked. You know, I got to bounce back here. Yeah, you'll do it. This was a really fun game. The first one here, Notre Dame. Favorite, they were favored by six and a half at still undefeated Louisville. And Louisville 
really takes it to him 33 to 20. Louisville looked like the better team all and game. It, yeah, it wasn't that close, I feel. Uh, this is what's fun about making these picks, right? Is most of the time, we obviously don't do any prep all the time for the picks. Mm-hmm. And secondarily, a lot of times, I still have not seen any of these teams play beyond casual watching on my three screens that I have for my football addicted living room. So I don't really know. It's not like I have the same, you know, analytical idea. And so what I mean here is I hadn't watched Louisville play a down of football all year. I was aware that Braum was there and that obviously he's a good coach and it seems like they're trending up, but I had no idea. I was aware that Notre Dame, as we said, has played a heck of a schedule and they had been playing a lot of close games. And I think both those things were the result of this game. Braum had it going. They were at home. Notre Dame clearly a little fatigued. Uh, tried to match Louisville's energy. But again, what do you, I want to ask you, what do you make of Jeff Brom here at Louisville? He went from Purdue to Louisville. Seems like a tangential move at Well, he's best. the favorite son, right? So, and so that's his home. I get it. But like, you know, what this is a, Purdue, he had things going in a nice direction. But this is, I think, maybe his, his biggest result, would you say? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they beat Ohio State at Purdue a couple years ago. That was, that was pretty big. Huge. Um, this is but, right up there. But I think if you're at a place, I mean, if Louisville, I mean, his like dad played there, I, think, I don't know, his grandfather, like his son played there. I mean, you you couldn't turn down Louisville for Purdue. I mean, you're thankful to be at Purdue, but this was, you know, an easy win for them. Yeah. And I think if you're Louisville, you could not be more hyped right now. Yeah, that's You've right. got your guy. Max high, yeah. You just beat a top 10 Notre Dame team who had essentially beaten Ohio State they should have won that game. Correct. And yeah. You're just got to be rolling. And this right is now. like, Brahm is like, this is not perfect, but he's kind of like their Steve Spurrier. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you set up. That's kind of the feelings you would have if it's a former Gator that's coming back and you just destroy a nationally relevant opponent who's, who's respected at home and everyone's there to see it. All right. A lot of Louisville talk, but I love it. Okay. Arkansas at Ole Miss. This is a really good game. Ole Miss wins 27-20. This was close. I mean, Ole Miss was up, then Arkansas was up, and then Ole Miss came back and took it at the end. Arkansas is disappointing this year. Their O-line been disappointing. However, this is what I want everyone to take away from this game. If you look at Arkansas and think, you know, that's going to be a win for Florida at home. They just push an Ole Miss team who's ranked and solid right to the wire, despite the fact they have a lot of deficiencies and turn the ball over several times. So, you know, the SEC is 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 a wild league this year. Very competitive top to bottom. Okay, Colorado wins at Arizona State. A wild game. They win 27-24. We pick Colorado at minus four, so we don't get this one. Uh, yeah, really good game. Colorado, I mean, they're compelling every week. Arizona yeah. State, fun team, and just on the bad end of some close The Pac-12 losses. is a blast. If you're not yeah. watching the Pac-12 at nighttime before you go to sleep, do yourself a favor and turn it on. These games have been excellent. At the end, you get uh, you know Shador running over and flashing the old bling at the student section mm-hmm. after a, a close win there at the end, which, you know, for Colorado, four wins already. That's wild. That's unbelievable. I love it. Beating the Vegas line already. Okay. This was even better. They're talking about something I love here. I love this Jayhawks program. They lay the wood to UCF, which makes it even sweeter. They went 51 to 22. UCF is 0 3 in the Big 12. Just say that one more time. UCF's one. UCF, I believe the stat is 0 3 in the mm. Big 12. Right. So all those years when the UCFers were crowing about how they would do well in a real conference. Uh, they're they're experiencing the reality of playing multiple difficult games in a row because they were playing pretty well. They were killing Baylor. They lose. And now they do not get to go play some cupcake like they had been playing. They have to play another real football team on the road. 
And they're not ready for that yet. And I love it because I was, you know, everybody's tired of hearing the mouth off for years. And here you go. So 0 and 3. They got what they want. They're getting what they wanted now. I'm here for it. All right. The sneaky Wyoming Cowboys in primetime television, they pick up another win 24 19 over Fresno State. They're probably in the driver's seat now for that group of five team in the New Year's Six. So good win for them. I knew it. We had talked about how Wyoming's a tough place to win. They're sneaky and whatever. I picked Fresno State. But yeah, great, great win. And we thought this would be a really competitive contest. And it was back and forth all the way really until the end. So uh, nice work out there in Wyoming. In some ways, this was maybe the game of the day because it was so wild. LSU wins 49-39. This game was so close. Missouri is up big at times. So there's times where I was like, man, is Missouri like legit good? And maybe they are and just LSU is right there with them, or they're both kind of pretty good and they're right at each other's throats. I mean, two future road opponents for Florida. Mm. Both can score. Both have weak defenses, which is probably not a great recipe for Florida. But Jaden Daniels probably would be right there with Caleb Williams as a Heisman contender, but he's going to be he's going to be washed out because his team can't win, I think, with defense. But Missouri is what I want to talk about here. Really cagey football team this year. Matching LSU in every way there until the end. And if it weren't for LSU's super prolific offense with Jaden Daniels, you know, they they might be winless at this rate versus real opponents, right? I mean, they have the number one offense in the SEC. They're a top five offense in the country. And they are barely winning every game because their defense is just that bad. Uh, but those are two, those are going to be two major games for Florida down the road. All right, Maryland. Man, Keeping Alan. it close they for a were, long time. They were in this game. They should have had more points than they had. At Ohio State, Ohio State ends up winning fairly comfortably, 37-17, but this is a game for a while. That score does not at all indicate what happened. I was obviously in Camden Yards. I'm watching the game on my phone. We're in a rain delay waiting for the game to start, and Maryland was taking it to Ohio State. They threw a pick on the goal line. They had another missed clock scenario at the end of the first half. It could have easily been 20-3 for Maryland. Pick six, I mean, it, really it could have been. Maryland looked real for three quarters of that game, and then Ohio State outlasted him in the fourth quarter. But uh, I think if you're a Maryland fan, that's that's probably a stick in the ground. Like, you know, this team can play. And if you're Ohio State, that's a good win. You came out, you got it taken to you early on. You, your team showed guts and ultimately finished the game. And football games are four quarters. So it's a good win for them, I think, over what could be uh, a dangerous Maryland team. All right, Alabama finds a way at Texas A&M 26-20, another really good game. Jalen Milrow all over the place. He's like the most extreme example of like a feaster family does some crazy bad stuff and some crazy good stuff. This game could have definitely gone either way, but it goes the way of Nick Saban. All the talk, of course, of Alabama being dead and out. Uh, we had said earlier that I, I felt like Bama was still going to win the West. They are. lost to Texas. And right now they're in the absolute driver's seat. A lot of games let's be played. And look, all these teams can stumble. I firmly believe that the way the SEC is, but Jimbo misses an opportunity at home there to knock off Alabama. And to your point, Milrow has his best game as a Bama quarterback, and that's why they won. All right, Kentucky beats Georgia. No, just kidding. They just get rolled by Georgia 13-51. This wasn't ever close. No, it wasn't. And I I hate to put a smile on my face because I hate Georgia. (laughs) But really, I just can't stand Kentucky beating Florida. It's really really pissing me off Mm -hmm. every single year. And it really makes me mad that people fall for them being good. It like drives me crazy. The Will Levis stuff drove me crazy. This year drove me crazy. And so, yeah, am I happy that Georgia beat the brakes off of them? You better believe it. 
I'm, that's ridiculous. Um, also, this just in, Carson Beck is really freaking good, which good. we said that. Quietly, nobody was paying attention to the fact that that dude was balling every week, and Georgia was looking bad. They weren't looking good, but he was playing really well. And if they figure out the run game, which they're going to figure that crap out because they're too talented not to, this team is going to be the juggernaut that everyone thought they would eventually become. Uh, and I think Carson Beck is way better than Stetson Bennett. Way better, way better than Stetson Bennett. He doesn't have a team yet, Joe. He's way better. So, yeah, Georgia's not going anywhere, and I, I hate that. But you have to give Kirby Smart credit, man. He has got this thing rolling maybe at a higher level than Saban ever did. He's an Whoa. absolute machine right now in year three into this juggernaut program. So I think the thing that might hold them back is, you know, the coordinator switch from Munkin to Bobo is might be a limiting factor for them and against certain opponents. It right? will be limiting. He's less. I agree. He's so less. we'll see. We'll see if they can overcome that at, at the highest level. And this, and this college football season is wide, wide open, wide open. That's for sure. Very wide open, which I love. This was awesome game. Oklahoma, Texas. If you haven't seen the highlights, go back and watch it. Oklahoma wins the very last second, 34-30. This is back and forth. This is a great win for Oklahoma. They looked excellent on both sides of the ball, despite the fact that Texas often looked really good. Texas often looked kind of bad, too, at the beginning of the game. But you never can tell in these rival games that's why college football is so special. This is a great one. The SEC is going to be so outrageous next year. Mm. I mean, because, look, Oklahoma's back. There's one thing we know, Venables got that team, they're bad. Well, Oklahoma's never bad. That was like, no, they have like blips, like, oh, you had one kind of offseason. They've had a few of those over like 50 years. They're always good. They're always good. And they just have a special little benefit because you look at the difference between Oklahoma and Nebraska, it's that Oklahoma borders Texas. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. And they get a ton of Texas players that go there. And, you know, it's hard to recruit Texas kids really well from other schools. They generally stay in Texas. They'll also go to Bama places, or they'll go to Oklahoma. And that's their advantage that they have, and it works out for them. But, man, I mean, the, <laughs> Oklahoma and Texas are ending the SEC at, at at the top of their game. I mean, they're both back to top levels. I'm looking forward to seeing what Oklahoma does for the rest of the season, as I am Texas. But that's a fun football game. I think that's one of those ones where you're a fan of either team. You can point to plays or ideas or, or, or moments that occurred where you can wish you did something better. But... Someone had to lose is how I view that game. Just a fun college football game. And I'm, I mean, again, you all know me. I'm really looking forward to them being in the SEC. I like the, I'm a traditionalist. I want the old rivalries to stay, but I also really wanted these cupcake scrub games to go away. And I want to see these games like this every week. And I think we're going to get that. And again, these two teams are going to be extraordinarily competitive in this league. Okay. A few other results here. Maybe the most notable non-highlighted game here. I almost put this in the picks. Georgia Tech beats Miami 23-20. There was about 10 things that happened at the end of this game that were remarkable. Actually, I guess only three because there's only a few plays. But each of them were amazing. But first, it starts with Miami not taking a knee with like 30 seconds left. They would would end the game. End the game. Take a knee. I'm sure all of you heard this by now. Yes. End the game. 100%. No question about it. The game is 100% over. Tech has no timeouts, right? So, But that just starts it, right? Tech gets a fumble from Miami, but they have to complete two unbelievable passes, and they get in the end zone. 
it was crazy. I mean, so normally this probably wouldn't even matter. Oh, you fumbled. But they, they'd still scored in 30 seconds, like had half the field to go. Yeah, coaching corner. That's not in coaching corner, Alan. When you have a hundred percent win rate in something, you take it and you go home. You do not make it not a one hundred percent win rate. And unbelievably, you know, Mario Cristobal, who has a checkered enough pass as that head coach decision maker. I don't know know? who was the one who chose to run the ball there. Maybe the OC said, "I I don't even. I can't even imagine being on the coaching headset." And if my OC told me we're running here, if we were not in the victory formation, I am pulling my headset off. I am calling. I'm losing my mind, first of all, at somebody. What are we doing? Did you know? None of that happened. Dot, dot, dot. Did you know they have done this in every game? Yeah, so that's what that's what I was going to say. What trended then afterwards was the reality that it had to be Mario Cristobal because he has done this when he wasn't at Miami too. Well, not this just... has followed him wherever he has been. So he is the smoking gun, Alan, which... If I'm a Miami fan, and I used to be, I grew up right there. I don't even, I don't even know. Well, they don't kneel it. What the they do. keep running the ball. It's asinine. So normally it hasn't mattered because they've been up a ton. So weird artifact of the game. They're running, not kneeling. And but when you're up a ton, actually, you can do it if you want. That's the funny thing. I think it's stupid, but if you want to get your freshmen, you can do it then because you know what, your win rate is still a hundred percent. Oh my gosh! I couldn't believe it. The Unreal. hubris off the charts there. Unreal. It's inexcusable, unforgivable. It's incredible. Okay, USC over Arizona again. These very plucky Arizona teams that get close and don't win. They lose. The you know, Arizona loses in three overtimes, forty-three to forty-one. Oh, I watched every second of this game because I was <laughs> Baltimore took an L. I'm in the hotel room. My parents are in the suite next door, and you know what else am I going to do? Late at night, but watch that game. And I just wanted Arizona to win so bad. They had so many chances. I want to ask you a coaching corner question right now. We've seen it so many times before, and it happens again. Arizona in the first overtime has a chance to go for two to win the football game. It kind of sounded like in the postgame interview that they didn't know that it was going to go to two-point conversions. That's unbelievable. After like the third one. Are you serious? I can't Is confirm that. Is that a real that. thing? I can't confirm that, but that that sounded like it. <laughs> I, mean, I can't. We do a podcast. We have real jobs outside of this. We're just <laughs> hobbyists. We do this for fun, right? We're not. We're not getting paid. We're not coaching experts. Whatever. You're you're kidding. I'm I'm not kidding. I might be wrong, but I'm. Oh, that's sure. sick. That's sick. I was gonna say the only after watching Arizona try to go for two twice, I thought to myself, well, now I know why they didn't want to go for two the first time because right. if you feel like your odds of getting a two point conversion are zero. Because the plays they were running were not good. Oh, man, they had it, though, Alan. They had it. And again, USC, if you're a USC fan right now, that offense was not rolling at all. Arizona stopped them for large, large parts of that game. Caleb Caleb Williams looked mortal. But they are anything but a title contender at this point. Mm-hmm. All right, Iowa over Purdue, but only scores 20. And you're uh, drive to 325 watch. But the, the I heard, is this correct? The contract, it's already over. He's safe. What do you mean? They ha- he had to have his starting quarterback in. Now, that maybe it was a rumor, but I saw that going around that that no longer applies because the the clause included he could not have an injury at quarterback. I had not heard that. But that could be made garbage. up. On, that could be made up from what I heard. But if that's true, that's outrageous. That's but garbage. either either way, <laughs> no matter who's playing quarterback, they uh, they're not scoring a lot of points. Okay, uh, Clemson over Wake, seventeen to twelve. Very Oof. feisty game there. I mean, I think you're taking it if you're a Clemson fan, obviously. But yeah. Yeah, things are not right. I mean, I mean again. Wake's beaten them 
several times. This is the problem. Let's just talk about it for a second. This is the problem with the CEO head coach. We talked about Dabo and Billy last time. You do not have all-star coordinators around you. And again, what do you need to win, Alan? You need talent at every spot, right? It's not enough for just Nick Saban to be by himself. He needs talent on offense and defense to help him as coaching and as players. But because he is so talented on defense, he can overcome a lot of that. But Billy does not have that superpower. So Dabo, he has what seems to be really good coordinators on his side right now, but stuff is still not right. It's still not right. It's not right. Okay. SEC Roundup, one game here. Mississippi State squeaks out a win over Western Michigan. So Mississippi State off to a winning record, but maybe, I think, safe to say, one of the weaker teams in the SEC. But they do get a win, which matters. All right. Daytona, Steve. Oh, Daytona. The road to 1K, Allen. Mm, that might have ended, run out of runway there. Ended with a Notre Dame-Louisville loss. He was correct on four of his five, but Notre Dame-Louisville broke him. Daytona Steve's road to 1K ends. He is now broke. <laughs> Daytona Steve, where are you? We don't have a segment this week from Daytona Steve. He did not send it in. I heard from his mother via text <laughs> that... She would have housed him had needed a place to stay or sent okay. him money. But when she heard how much he's smoking cigs these days, yeah, I, she did not want to enable that behavior. I think he's so, got a cot at the track that they'll let him sleep on. Yeah. So that's I great. mean, I, please take him in at the Greyhound track. You know he's there all the time. Just let him work it out. And hopefully we see a reemergence from him in future weeks. But right now, if you know where Daytona Steve is, uh, probably at the track somewhere. Please find him, wake him up, make sure he's fed, give him some water. Yeah, buy him some hot dogs. Yeah, buy him something to eat, please. Maybe some some greens of any kind too to keep him well. But nah, he uh, doesn't need those. He just needs hot dogs. But he is he is bankrupt. So <laughs> he is out. And that's painful. All right, a couple coaching corners here. The Wyoming Fresno State game. Wyoming's up 24-13. Fourth quarter, eight minutes and thirty seconds left. Fresno State with two timeouts. Fresno State just kicked a field goal, so they're down two scores. On the kickoff, Fresno State executes a surprise onside kick. They score a touchdown, fail the two-point conversion, making it 24-19. Five minutes left. Do you like the decision for the onside kick, given that Wyoming had not been moving the ball in the second half? So it worked out for them perfectly. But do you kick off with eight minutes left, down two scores, or are you thinking onside kick? Let me turn it to you. What do you think? I think, I didn't watch this game, but I think if what we're saying here is true that Wyoming's offense had been anemic, then I'm I'm definitely kicking away because I don't want to pin my own offense, which has also seemingly not been good. I've just got to 13 points, right, Alan? Inside my own 10-yard line, if I stop them, I'd much rather get the ball around the 40 or 35-yard line. I, I don't like the risk-reward of that. However, the time to execute an onside kick is when your opponent does not expect it. So the fact that it was a surprise onside kick and they did not line up ready for an onside kick leads me to believe this. I imagine that what Fresno State did was have a two-for-one call there where we're going to go to the line, and if they are lined up in regular kickoff, we're taking a chance. I love that idea. If they're lined up in an onside kick receive formation, do not do it. So I'm going to go with, I like it because they had a plan. They got the look they wanted. They tried. Ultimately, I like it for that reason. Yeah, I think I'll agree with you on that. I do like the surprise element for sure. Yeah, no surprise, though. I hate it. I'm not a fan for that. All right, Miami, Georgia Tech. We already talked about uh, this game, right? As Miami, of course, collapses at the end. I want to mention it right here. It was sent to us by so many people. It was easily the most coaching corner requested (laughs) of all time. But the best thing about it was almost nobody 
actually said it was a coaching corner other than to say, I know it's totally self-explanatory, but please mention it because it's so absurd. So, yes, there's no corner from which to coach from. No, so we give it max measurement for that because we needed to do that. All right, two more though. This one I thought was interesting. This is one that I like. It was nuanced. So A&M, several decisions in this game that I think will haunt A&M. One, it was tied up 17-17, fourth and one. They don't go for it. Yeah. That was ridiculous. We now know after the fact that that was not Bobby Petrino's call. From what we understand, he wanted to go for it. And Jimbo, this is the same argument. Billy, are you going to override your OC or not? Well, that is probably a coaching... You have to be in concert there. Do, no, you do. That's it. my point, though. It's like you could have the most aggressive OC of all time. Bobby's aggressive, but ultimately the head coach has the buck stopping there. But the coaching corner here is A&M does what we see teams do week in and week out. And this stuff does get me because you don't need to be a football coach to make the right move here. A&M is down two scores. They need a field goal and a touchdown, and that will win them the game. And there are about two and a half, three minutes left, and they have their all their timeouts left. So they're fine. They're on the five-yard line. They get stopped three plays in a row. And on the third play, now fourth down, the clock is running down. They do not get the field goal unit quite ready in time. Jimbo calls a timeout. They're on the four-yard line. Yeah, this is atrocious. Unbelievable. So rather, just take a delay a game and kick the field goal. The field goal is fine. Take a delay a game. You call a timeout, which is brutal. That's 40 seconds that you desperately need on the clock for calling timeouts to get the ball back. I, I don't understand how this still happens. Like, this is inexplicable. Someone's got to be in his ear saying, just let it be a delay a game. We're fine. Keep the timeout. The timeout is worth more than gold there. Stupid. Yeah, this is probably just like a reaction, like, oh, we're running out of time. I got to call a timeout. The math stuff is hard. So I, for college coaches, like if you're trying to quickly decide, should I take a timeout here? Crunching all the numbers, all the other things, which is, I think, why most teams, most smart coaches, I think, would have a guy who's just, that's his responsibility on some level to like do the math for you. But in this case, it probably wasn't a math thing. It was just a we're about to get a penalty. I need to call a timeout. And that's just a major malpractice there. Yeah, absolutely. And it happens too often. All right. Lastly, Louisville, Notre Dame, Notre Dame goes for it on their own, uh, you know, half basically like inside their own 30 and it's fourth and 10. They're down two scores. Um, you know, what do you think about this one? This one, this one is to me, it's like they knew they needed to score. Mm-hmm. they weren't scoring very often. And at some point in time, the time is running out on you. Also, it's really important when you guys send in corners that you send in all the details because we don't always have time to go look at exactly what's going on here. So this one's a little vague for me. Yeah, I would think with the time on the clock is the salient detail here. But if you are not going to get enough possessions, you just have to go for it. If you start punting, you're basically punting the game away. So I don't care where the ball is. Right you essentially have to go for it. And that's the answer. That's why it's hard for us to definitive answer this one is we don't know the exact time remaining. If you have, you know, six minutes left in the third quarter, do not go for that. You still play, but in the fourth quarter, something's different. Louisville, though, this one I do like. Louisville is up 10 in the second half, and it's 23-13, and they go for it on fourth and short in, you know, a 40-ish yard field goal range. Do you like that one? I do like that one. Uh, I like being aggressive there because the field goal doesn't really do you too much there yeah you just go up you're still up two scores you go up the, the two scores with two point conversions but the positive ev is much more with you to go for that and then put them up three scores mm-hmm. even if you don't get it the odds that they then score a touchdown are still relatively small especially given the game flow 
I think that is the right move. I like seeing coaches do that more often, especially in college where a 45-yard field goal is not a no, certainty. It's not a gimme. Uh, so I think in that case, you're, it's worth the risk that you have there. All right, let's let's honor some patrons. Let's do it. Weston Jones, Stephen Coffer, Libgator, Riley Revels, Cooper and Kylie Craig. There, there they are. are. Yeah. Pete Wordesheim, Alfred Garcia, Chris Goles, Mark Rubenstein, Craig, or Phil Coover, Craig Scarado, Sean Long, Brent Walker, Rafael Fernandez, Joseph Pera, Rannis Lamberte, Kevin Stegan, Mike, Mike Bryant, David Waters, George Lee, Glenn Merritt, Sean Williams, Jenny Gibson, Benjamin Sykes, Gusto Gator, Pete Wells, Daniel Gray, Will Miles, reading reaction. It's funny, these like uh, other Gator people who I assume these are mostly. Uh, yeah, who, who we love, by the way. Yeah, they're great. But yeah. it's, you know, probably not actually them. Stash Me, Patrick Barnett, Jeffrey Nielsen, Ski Gator 93, Rich Ramirez, Dylan Barton, A. McCollum, Hillbilly Brand, Chris Folsom. Harrison Stanley and Avery Strick. A lot of legends sneaking their way in there. Yeah, Hillbilly Bren. I don't I know we've read that every year. I don't recall reading. I don't have missed that one. That's fantastic. All right. A couple live reads here for you. AG1. Is it back? Back in the rotation. A foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. Uh, again, if you have AG1 available or you're going to order it, maybe include Daytona Steve in that. He might he might benefit from this given where he's at. Uh, of course, we gave AG1 a try because they sponsored our podcast. Importantly, it is not a greens drink. Why? Because it's way more than just a greens drink. It mixes multiple things together that if you wanted to create on your own, it's like four or five products basically put into one. So it's a one-stop shop that tastes rather surprisingly nice for a drink that looks very green. And I enjoy it in the morning before breakfast as it makes me feel like I give my body what it needs to start the day optimally and face whatever Florida football is going to give us that particular week. If you are looking for a comprehensive solution from your supplement routine, then give AG1 a try. You can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. I know I've seen several of you comment to this in our messaging on social media. It is on all of our links that we put on the pod, so you should be able to see it there, but the link is here for you. It's drinkag1.com slash GNFP. That's drinkag1.com slash GNFP. All right, secondly, we're back here with our listener, yours truly, honoring Corey Amira each week. Look, if you're in the custom home building market, which some of you may be, and you're in Alachua, this is who you want to look up. That's your guy. Here you go. As Gator fans, we know what it's like when we have a high-octane offense, and we know what it's like when we don't have one. <laughs> An aggressive defense, recruiting something, and the culture that is built to win games. When it comes to building your custom home in Alachua County... You're going to want a program builder who's also an excellent home builder, and that is Corey Amira with Amira Custom Homes in Alachua. He has the experience building high-quality custom homes, There's a portfolio on his website where you can check all of that out. He is a second-generation contractor who's been in construction his entire life and has what you need to get the right floor plan for your family to execute the highest standard throughout the entire construction process. And on top of that, of course, he is a supporter of the GNFP. Check out Corey's previous builds and work at amiracustomhomes.com. That's A-M-I-R-A, customhomes.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's do it, Alan. It's Let's time for some Cox Game prep. Week. Game week. Cox prep. That's right. Prep your Cox. Maybe not. <laughs> no, do not. Okay, <laughs> 3.30 p.m. South Carolina, who's 2-3, and three, is favored by two points versus Florida, who's 4-2. and two. Does that surprise you? Two and three versus four and two, two point favorite. No, because South Carolina's played a really tough schedule thus far. I mean, yeah, let's talk about who they played because I think maybe most of you know, but if you don't know, it's pretty impressive. They played North Carolina, they played Georgia and Tennessee, and I'm leaving someone else and out. Mississippi State, Mississippi State. So they've played four of their five opponents are, are real opponents. Furman's their one layup win, so they have not had any favors done to them schedule wise. Okay, so I tease this out a little bit. I think this is a huge game for Florida, partly because of the Kentucky loss. Now, if you bank that Kentucky win, this one goes down in importance. As we said, post-bye week, Florida is about to just hit a really, really tough stretch considering where they are as a program. And this Carolina team is good, but they're inconsistent. They they are beatable, but this is a Florida team on the road who's not as we said, not done well on the road at all. I think in terms of momentum and program stability, this is really important for Florida or could be really beneficial for Florida. If you get kicked in the teeth in this game, like you did against Kentucky and you head into Georgia where you're probably going to get, you know, your head smashed in there. All of a sudden you're reeling and you have potential just to finish on a really low note. Pick up this win. Even if you lose to Georgia, you can say, all right, it's the number one team in the country. Let's pick up ourselves back up and and go at it again. There's still some winnable games on the back half of the slate. So I don't want to make too much out of this. And, you know, it's not all just momentum and, you know, kind of team health theory. But this is still on the team on the fringe. And, again, this is a, this is a regime on the fringe, right? You buy yourself a lot more goodwill if you can get that win number up. And I will say, I will take any win. It could be totally fluky. I do not care if it's 17, 16, and we have two defensive touchdowns, whatever. I do not care at this point. I just want enough wins to keep the train on the tracks. And we'll talk about the offseason stuff later. But I think that's where this Florida team is right now. I love it. That's that's exactly right. This is a pivotal game in the truest sense of the word we are in the midst of a rebuild we said before the season we didn't expect great things from this season but you just said at the end there keep the train on the tracks keep the rebuild 
the primary focus. And you do that by winning games that you can win. Then you can tell your recruits and your fan base, look, we know that we're not where we want to be yet, but we're building our farm system, so to speak, with our recruits. The talent's coming in the pipeline. Better days lie ahead. But you've got to beat teams that have problems like you have, at least at a 50% clip. You certainly can't keep losing to all of them on the road. And this would do everything you said, Alan, just to calm stuff down, buy some goodwill, buy some time with your recruits. We're going in the right direction. Even if Georgia beats us, hey, you know, we're not ready yet, but when you get here, we're going to be ready, right? This is like buying you weeks, essentially, of good vibes and getting a, a desperately needed row win. So it's pivotal. It's not career ending or life ending for Florida's program as we know it, but there's so much that this game offers you as a program that if I'm a coach, you are like, I really, really, really want to put a W in the win column here. This one, again, feels pivotal. Right. And as we said, Tennessee was the most winnable of the rivalry games, at least from that vantage point. This feels like the most winnable game left. It does. It does indeed. Right. It doesn't mean there aren't winnable games on the schedule. Arkansas's maybe, you know, more winnable. But again, where Arkansas falls, like this is the one that launches you into like a very different momentum state. Mm Mm-hmm. And that matters. That matters. There we go. All right. Before we get into nuts and bolts of South Carolina, we've got what's become a, a favorite element for me, Big Homies Culture Corner. Let's do it. You want to do mascot background or you want me to? Uh, you take this one. Okay. So just a little refresher here. South Carolina sports teams are referred to as the Gamecocks in honor of the Revolutionary War hero. Thomas Sumter, the Brigadier General and future South Carolina Center, was called the Carolina Gamecock for his fierce fighting style. Cocky's the official mascot. He's Cocky's the son of famed animation legend Foghorn Leghorn. Is that true? No, that's not true. I mean, I don't know. That's what's great about these big. I mean, if you've never seen stuff. Cocky, just picture Foghorn Leghorn, except as a drunk, low rent, anthropomorphic <laughs> chicken at Chuck E. Cheese, smoking cigs by the dumpster out back before a shift, which is probably right yeah. where Daytona Steve is, getting right hammered and making awful comments to children before being sent home for being inappropriate that's cocky and a failure and embarrassment to his father so i just read the first line which is true and the rest is not (laughs) but cocky is a great name for their mascot i mean i love it all right cockfighting you got to talk about this cockfighting is a blood sport involving roosters also known as cocks held in a ring called a cockpit when i said prep your cocks if your mind was not on this that's your fault not mine the first documented use of the word gamecock, denoting use of the cock as to a game, a sport, pastime, or entertainment, was recorded way back in 1634. After the term cock of the game, used by George Wilson in the earliest known book on the sport of cockfighting and the commendation of cocks and cockfighting in 1607. Man. I just love how big homie threw the word cock in like 14 times in three sentences. Get ready, Thank there's you for more that. coming. I appreciate that. But it was during Magellan's voyage of discovery of the Philippines in 1521 when modern cockfighting was first witnessed and documented for Westerners by the Italian Antonio Bigafetta. There you go. Magellan's chronicler in the kingdom of Tete. That's from Wikipedia. There you go. (laughs) So that's real. That's factual cockfighting information. And of course, it does not surprise me that a fellow Paisan was the one who witnessed and documented it. (laughs) Well-traveled there. There you go. All right, the fan reputation. All right, I just got to say, Big Homie is just firing shots here. Okay, 
Brought to you by the same state that who gave you the Murdoch family, I give you the Gamecock fan, a relentlessly delusional football fan who can only redirect their intense love for football rather than face the reality of mediocrity. The autumn winds do not change quite as briskly as Scar fan whose team loses early in the season. SEC chants can be heard echoing the bleachers of williams Bryce Stadium during the Furman vs. Scar game after UNC spanked them in their season opener. We should really be taking a closer look at what is going on there is a fan base who innocently enough starts putting fan gear on their children, but inevitably ends up with a drunk 29-year-old man in flip-flops and sweatpants with the word cocks on them. That, that's it. That's the end of that. That's fan a responsible rate. fan take, I think, really, at the end there. There you go. That's true. Um, my favorite thing I mention every year with South Carolina, if you're traveling on the road there and it's your first time there, you're going to see something called the cockabooses. And they're amazing. I think they're one of the coolest things yeah. at any SEC stadium. They have a train right next to the stadium. And that's where like their bull gators will tailgate. They'll it's it's a fully functional suite, if you will, outside the stadium for tailgating. And they're really cool. So get a chance to visit the cockabooses. If you know someone who has a cockaboose, definitely tailgate there. Uh, but it's a fun thing out there. Right. And in, in a stadium, it's generally not fun. Pretty nondescript, not really picturesque or ideal, but the cockabooses are great. So I think Columbia in general is is pretty nondescript. Correct. The I stadium. Agree. But I will say this about South Carolina fans. They have had a long history of mediocrity. Yes, yeah, true. But they're still a really good fan base. They're they there. do get out of pocket. They are, as was the word, uh, become a user inappropriate. <laughs> inappropriate. Uh, and maybe relentlessly delusional, but that could be applied to all fan bases. But uh, yeah, facts. That, I mean, this is a tough place to play considering that South Carolina is generally not good or mediocre outside the Spurrier era. And I, I think they have a little hope with Beamer, right? That he's recruiting a little bit better. They're they're feeling a little bit, even though the record isn't what they want it to be this year. They are, and I find it really funny that their entrance into the stadium is it just feels like a dated time warp. But they're going to stick they with like it. it. I don't know how long they're going to stick with that. It feels I don't know. It feels okay. feels like something you should make more timeless. But that's just me. Let's get into the actual nuts and bolts of this game. All right, Shane Beamer, son of legendary coach Frank Beamer. He's in his third year, he's 15 and 11. But it's like not I said, bad at South it's not bad. And He's had some know, big wins. They've had some notable recruits, right? So they've been reeling in some five stars the last couple cycles, which is big for them. Uh, let me just do the other coaching staff real quick. Dow Logan's is first year as OC. Clayton White, third year as a DC. So they have a new OC this year. And the DKI, the Danny Kent Index. So that this kind of combines recruiting, raking, and experience. It's kind of split here. Advantage UF offense versus Carolina defense. Slide advantage Carolina offense versus UF defense. That feels like it probably holds true, especially when you like think about production. And that doesn't mean right. that, as we're going to see, the actual stats this season indicate that Carolina's offense is better than UF's defense. It's just, as we said, the talent on each respective team relative to the unit they're facing. And experience goes into a... Right, right, recruiting, but experience. Florida's playing a ton of freshmen, correct? So they're very low on the, you know, experience side of that. Even though they're playing well, okay. I think we all know Spencer Rattler, erstwhile Oklahoma QB, now been in South Carolina for a little bit. He's playing well this year, despite the fact that they don't haven't picked up any big wins. You know, sixty three percent completion, fourteen hundred yards, seven TDs, only three picks. He's been very mercurial in the past, but I think he's playing well. Uh, If you've watched any South Carolina games, despite the fact that Carolina has been very up and down, he's looked probably the most consistent he's ever looked. 
you'll probably recognize Dukarian Joyner. He's in his 15th year of college football. Just kidding. Just his sixth year. It feels like that. He's got 100 yards and four TDs. Mario Anderson, 230 yards, two TDs. Yeah, they're a running back by yep. committee. So they have like three or four guys that almost have the same mm-hmm. carries. But I think I think Mario Anderson has the best broken tackle rate and whatnot. He's the most dangerous one. So the names know at receiver, Xavier Leggett, fifth-year senior, 32, yard, 32 receptions, 606 yards, three TDs. Let that settle in for a second. Yeah. He has 600-plus receiving yards mm-hmm. already. Already. That's prolific. And they do throw to tight ends. We'll mention one here. Trey Knox, fifth-year senior, 17 receptions, 164 yards. So, so Leggett, yeah. Leggett has 38 targets, Allen, which is astronomical. That's almost more than the other three wide receivers combined. And then Knox has 25 targets. It's a two-man engine on the offense. The other guys can make plays, and they're out there. But Spencer Rattler is looking for Leggett, which means as a defensive coordinator, you have to game plan for Leggett. They'll have him throw passes. They'll have him run screen plays. They'll have him run vertical routes. They use him all over the field. He is absolutely dangerous. Okay, so Florida absolutely shelled South Carolina last year. South Carolina do nothing. They turned the ball over a ton. This is Florida's best game by far. Now, <clears throat> we have a different defensive coordinator in this game. They're playing better. How much does that carry over into this game? You know, that was a fluky performance by Florida's defense last year. And then that launched sort of South Carolina into an incredible end of season run that they went on. So I'm going to say that we that team that we faced against South Carolina was just different than this one is. And they have a different OC as well. They do. It was a better team last year in general, top to bottom. They were more complete. Uh, Their offense is interesting. Let's talk about it here. The 57% pass, 43% run. They're throwing more because they, they have to for a couple of reasons. One, they keep falling behind. Two, they're not good at running the ball. In general, their offense actually is going to sound pretty bad, but there's some important takeaways here. They're 90th in yards per play, 96th in points per play, 120th, 120th in a third down conversion rate at 30%, right near the bottom, 59th in red zone scoring, 120th in yards per rush, 39th in yards per pass. Take that in for one second. Mm -hmm. That's very Kyle Trask-like that you can't run the ball at all. Now, Trask was even better at Florida with Dan Mullen, but to beat 39th in yards per pass when you literally can't run the ball is amazing. Listen to this next stat. It's even more amazing. 129th in sacks allowed. They're like fourth from the bottom and 50th in INTs thrown. So they are throwing the ball a ton. They have an abysmal offensive line, yet they are 39th in yards per pass. That tells you one thing and one thing only. Spencer Rattler is an absolute magician this year on film. He is escaping all sorts of pass rush angles. He's keeping plays alive with his legs. He's throwing absolute dimes. There's no business throwing. And largely on film, Alan, South Carolina's passing concepts are excellent. These dudes are open a lot. The problem is they can rarely even block for one second to let things happen. But if he does have time, on film, whether it's Georgia or someone else, these guys are open. The concepts are excellent, but they have a major deficiency in their run game and obviously in their O-line. So success rate-wise, they're 78th overall, 76 on center downs, 53rd on passing downs, which is, again, a testament to Spencer Rattler keeping plays alive on third down and on second and five and longer, or second and seven rather and longer. 
Uh, passing play-wise, 67th, and running play-wise, 106. So successful rate-wise, again, not a good offense, but they are way more dangerous than their numbers would indicate, in large part because of who they've played and what it looks like on film. Lastly, 22% of plays are play-action, 22% involve some sort of motion, 11% are RPOs. They will use their RPO more than any team Florida played thus far. They are hit at the line with their run plays, a remarkable 61%. That's crazy That's incredible. They're mainly a zone-running team, which bodes well for Florida. They will run some power. They've been very weak versus cover two man and cover two zone, and they've essentially shredded everything else. So I think this is a game where if you're Coach Ham, you look at two things. One, how do we stop... Leggett, obviously, because he's their main thought. But also, do you put any credence into the fact that he really is, Spencer really is just shredding all pressures, five, six, or seven man. He's shredding all other types of defense. And this is seemingly a weakness for them. The cover two style defenses, do you lean into that? We're going to find out. Um, They also generally are worse versus three or four man rushes than they are any kind of pressure. All right, can you stop and so... We talk about cover two, cover three. I, you know, some people ask to like just occasionally pause. And so, cover two. So, give me that in like one sentence. Cover two in one sentence. If it's man, we'll take the most simple example. Is you're going to have two safeties splitting the field in half, and they are helping on the most vertical routes run into their area. Then your five defenders underneath, generally speaking, are going to be playing man. So your number one corner and your number one receiver so on and so forth. Now you can change some rules up there to make things more man matched where you might bracket the best receiver. So let's give you a Bill Belichick call, something called double Jersey, which is just like what it sounds like, which you've seen Bill Belichick use famously, especially in the Patriots heyday where safety will come and bracket the best receiver. Oftentimes with your second best corner, freeing up your best corner to play their second best receiver and giving you good matchups. That's also a way to play cover two, but you just bring a safety in to man the additional guy. But generally speaking, Alan, cover two man are two safeties helping on anything vertical, five guys playing man underneath. If you know it's a pass, it's hard to beat that. There's not a lot of space. And I think the reason you see those numbers being low for South Carolina is people are getting pressure with three and four, four man rushes anyway. And now when you're accounting for everyone with help over the top, there's just not a lot of space to throw the football. So, just in general, if you hear this cover zero, cover one, cover two, cover three, the higher the number, the more conservative the defense is, correct? Yeah, in general, right? There's more guys back. Right. That's right. That's a nice, simple so way. So cover to zero, it. there's nobody back. No, but we see teams run against Florida and we don't pass it inexplicably. But yes. So, yes, sending more rushers at Spencer, if, they, if you don't get home, that's going to free up more space on that backhand for him to have some wizardry back there. So this could be a frustrating day for Florida if they don't get home and they allow him to run around and do some magic back there. And that's one risk. If you run cover two, cover two man, which, you know, right now it's like, all right, if Coach Ham and I are talking, it's like, hey, man, look, he's really struggling versus cover two man. The risk a coordinator looks at is, but that's going to put five guys that are in the intermediate part of the football field with their eyes not on the quarterback. So if our four-man rush doesn't get home, we don't keep a good rush lane, he will escape. Yep. And he's going to pick up a third and 10 first down automatically because our safeties are falling back with the furthest guys. South Carolina's offense is smart and good. They almost always run at least two guys vertical, which keeps those safeties back there. And if they know they get man, they count on Spencer to find a way to get out of it, which he's been doing. So that's the risk of running man. It's why a lot of coordinators might want to play cover one with a spy. Now you take your linebacker like Scooby 
And his job is just to stop Spencer from running. He waits. But when you do that, now you really can't double a guy like Leggett. So this is what kind of questions South Carolina asks of you based upon the talent they have at receiver and the fact that Spencer is very elusive, surprisingly elusive in the pocket. Now, Florida has excelled, as we've seen, with their gap control pass rushing. It's something I can't stop gushing about. This will be a key in this game already, Alan, is to keep Spencer rather inside the tackle box if we get pressure because he's much more dangerous if the play's breaking down, if he's able to escape left or right for obvious reasons. But again, with all these things being said, to me, the major takeaway here is Rattler has just been sensational given the horrifically bad hand he has been dealt. And Leggett is the real deal. All that leads to this. This will be the most challenging offense that Florida has faced, despite the fact that Florida should automatically be able to stop the run. Nobody is even remotely going to test Florida passing-wise like South Carolina did. Now, if you're thinking Tennessee, Tennessee's scheme is much harder to defend. But Tennessee in Milton, which we knew, was an inaccurate quarterback. Florida felt comfortable knowing he's not going to make enough throws. Rattler's the opposite. He is very accurate. If you give him time, he's going to beat you. So you don't have the luxury of, oh, you know what, fine. Versus Tennessee, if he gets time, he might just miss a deep pass, right? That's not happening. So you're going to feel pressure as a defense, Allen, to get him off the spot. Because you know the longer he has back there, the more likely he is to hurt you. All that being said, that offensive line is a major Achilles heel major Achilles heel. So I think Coach Ham has several ways he can choose to beat this. Lastly, reminder with Georgia, Rattler was an incredible 16 of 18 at halftime versus Georgia. And then he was 6 of 24 in the second half. Georgia did not significantly alter their strategy. They did do one very interesting thing though, and that is they played a lot more dime. So they brought in a 6 DB, which Georgia generally does not do. They like to do what Florida does, keep their linebackers in play nickel. But they were so comfortable stopping South Carolina's run. And given the fact that they needed to have even better coverage because those linebackers were unable to run underneath with South Carolina's, I think, you know, very quality route scheme combinations, they went with 60 Bs more and that was successful for them. Just making sure they could shrink the windows Spencer had to go to and trust their pass rush to get there. We'll see if Florida chooses to play that. We have not played really any snaps of dimes this year. I mean, dime this year at all. So that right. would be a new thing for us to do. I don't know that Coach Ham's going to feel like he has to do that, but I bet you he's got that in his back pocket because again, despite the bad numbers of South Carolina's offense, I want all of you to know this is a very dangerous offense given their limitations. They're still dangerous. They're going to put pressure on Florida. Agreed. And I think there will be some plays that Rattler will make that old, you know, if you're thinking he's not quite the same player, obviously as Jordan Travis, but you think you have him, then you don't. All of a sudden, he's making a play down the field. So, yeah, Florida needs to bring their A game here. Okay, defensively, South Carolina, not good so far. This is not a unit that should strike fear in you. A couple guys to mention safety, Jalen Kilgore leads the team in tackles. From defensive tackle, TJ Sanders leads the team in sacks. I'll tell you, they're not getting a lot of production out of their defensive ends. Yeah, their numbers are middling to bad in most categories. Anything to note here that... Oh, maybe they do this a little bit better. Yeah, well, let's just talk about... Yeah, you mentioned their their standard numbers are all 75th to 115th or so or worse. A couple important numbers for Florida matchup-wise. They're 114th in sacks. So they're not generating a lot of pressure. They're still going to generate pressure on Florida because everyone does. 
They are getting a decent amount of INTs though. They're 40th in INTs. Success rate wise, they're 125th overall. They are surprisingly pretty good on standard downs, which is interesting. And they're horrible on almost everything else. Passing downs, 113th. Uh, Running plays, 107th. Passing plays, 128th. So that tells you they're having some first down success, which I think is largely fluky, is what I would tell you there. For Florida, Florida is a much better standard down offense than they are passing downs for sure, than they are, you know, anything else in that regard. But the matchup here for Florida is very similar to what they face with Vanderbilt. This is something where you can almost put in the game plan. This is a more talented version of Vanderbilt, but what they've put so far on film and on the stat sheet is a defense that that can be had, is not covering well, is giving up significant rushing yardage. They play a lot of man, despite the fact that they're getting torched. They play a lot of cover four, So it's like a weird barbell, Allen, of like play really safe or play really aggressive. They're trying to find something that works. They are a better defense when they bring pressure. So it's possible at this point in time, they decide to say, you know, what's not working for us is playing safe. You know, what we're not worried about is Florida beating us deep. And this is the fear that you can have looking at film. If I'm South Carolina, I'm analyzing this. I know Florida has not beaten anybody vertically. Their offensive line is an issue. Mertz likes to escape the pocket, is not generally generating a lot from that. We're going to feel comfortable bringing pressure and taking our chances. They don't get it. And that has been the best defensive style for them. So there's something to look for there. If Florida can take advantage of something we haven't seen them do, which is get their safeties covering someone, their safeties are horrific across the board at covering people. So teams have definitely taken advantage of those matchups. Florida typically does not do that or play that way. So for me, it all results into one game plan question because I think we know we're not overnight going to see Florida come out and terrorize people with a really quality passing game. Will the preferred East-West low air yards passing game work versus the South Carolina team, which has been prone to getting gashed by all kinds of plays? Or is that deficiency enough? Is Florida playing enough with one arm tied behind their back that South Carolina can slow Florida down more than they have other teams. That, to me, is the fundamental question. That's really interesting. And can Florida just line it up and smash them enough in the run game that they mute South Carolina's uh, any kind of weapons they might have on defense and limits what South Carolina wants to do on offense? But I think you're right. The Is Trey Wilson effective in this game? Can he play the whole game? What do we get out of Mertz in terms of throwing the ball 15 to 20 yards down the field? Do we get anything out of that? That would be a huge bonus. But yeah, I think that's probably the key question in terms of game plan. So when you stack all this up, it feels like Florida has significant advantage at offense, potentially, if they can do what they want to do and maybe matches up well against South Carolina defensively. But the South Carolina team just feels wonky. I don't feel comfortable actually like saying that. The numbers would lead you to say these are p- potential major factors in the game, but it might not shake out that way on game day. Yeah, absolutely right. And that, that I think is what's tricky. And notice I didn't in the game plan say how I think we should attack them because at that point in time, that's just not really relevant. We're mm-hmm. trying to more give you what we think will happen. And I think Billy is going to do what Billy does. He's going to try to get that East-West game going, get them to flow, see if he can't, as you said, be successful despite the fact that they're going to load the box. 
I think our history on film tells us we have not been successful versus any team that's been willing to load the box against us, running the football consistently. Um, we have been more successful with Trey there. So I think Billy might be thinking with Trey, I'll get enough out of that. And then hopefully I'll be able to finally hit some first down play action because USC is not pressuring the quarterback at a rate other teams we have played is. Those are big question marks that Florida has not proven with yet. So I think that's why this spread is what it is between one and a half and two and a half, which would indicate a neutral site. Florida is lightly favored. Factoring in Florida's incredible road woes. That's how you get USC being favored despite the fact that the stats would indicate Florida, who's also played a quality schedule, has far better success rate stats, which often matters a lot to how Vegas makes odds. But again, there are so many question marks with who Florida is on the road. And Spencer Rattler has been such a gamer in these games that he's an X-factor and he's playing at home. That's where you get a game where, I mean, anyone's guess as to what can happen with this one. All right, a few categories here. Special teams advantage USC. They're number one in kicking. Very interesting. Penalties advantage USC. Turnover margin advantage USC. These are some other things that come into play in that Vegas line, potentially. Turnover margin advantage Florida, of course. The time of possession, you mean, yeah. Yes, sorry. Time Significant of advantage Florida there. Yes. Okay. Uh, again, I'll give my weekly caveat that we don't know a lot here on Monday. Caleb Douglas still out. So Barber, Kingsley, and Etienne did not play last week. I do not know if they are playing this week. If someone else does, good for them. Um, so feels like probably a yes for Kingsley and ETN. Barber was a more almost I'm gonna say probably yes, but he was a more interesting recent. Yeah, it seems like the injury ETN board. the way they talked about it that he theoretically could have played in that Vanderbilt game, right? And, I, and we didn't need him to, right? So we'll see. Okay, keys to the game. You get to go first. All right, I'm going to give you what I think. I'm going to change it up this time. I'm going to go with the automatic. Like, if this happens, we will most likely win. Like, okay. And then I'm going to give you the what needs to be done to just get a win, potentially. Right? So it's like a ceiling and a floor. So on offense, automatically, regardless of Billy's game, Billy's game plan, if we rush the ball for six yards or more per carry, so I'm going to go six yards per carry, right? Six yards per play. Then that means that what we want to do is working. And the East-West passing game is probably sufficient. And we probably rack up 300-ish yards of offense and probably score 20-something points. And that's probably enough. So that one stat is probably what is going to dictate how well we do. Secondarily, to get ourselves into a more coin-flippy game, if we're able to pass the football, and I can go with simple things like third down conversion. These are before, which I'm going to do. I'm going to go conversion rate uh, for third down. It needs to be, again, that 40% number I think is really important for Florida. And then I also think if you want to look at an automatic, automatic win, we have air yards above 80, which is not even a lot, right? But I think if we're completing more than 80 yards in air yards and we get, you know, the six yards per, per, per rush and then the 30, the, the third down coverage of 40%, that is a win for Florida. Any one of those three happens that's not the rushing yards one, it, it may not mean anything because you could be behind, et cetera. So the rushing yards one, paramount. The other two, in concert, a win individually may not mean anything. All right, I'm going to go hyper-specific on this, and I think he's the key to this offense being above mediocre, and that's Trey Wilson. So does he average more than seven yards a carry? Because that means he's hitting bigger plays. Now, again, this is a little skewed, so I might have to parse this out afterward because some of those pop passes are... Yeah, maybe seven yards per touch. Per touch. There okay. you go. Okay. 
uh, and if he's accelerating and he's picking up 20 yards or if we're able to actually throw the ball to him further than like negative air yards, I think that would do a lot. All right, what about defensively for you? All right, I'm going to go with something I've never done before, which is a point total. Okay. But I think the defense, no matter how it comes, has to hold South Carolina to less than 17 points. I like it. So I'm going to do something again. As I imagine the things that Florida is would make Florida lose, Spencer Rattler under 50 yards rushing. If he has a if he's running the ball like we're we're in that defensive lineman like you mentioned we're playing cover two man and he's escaping the pocket and killing us on third down. I think that's going to make for kind of a long day for this unit and that's demoralizing when you get into like third and ten you let the quarterback pick it up. Hopefully that's not going to happen, and we'll see him contained again. As you said, we've been rushing well in our rushing lanes. When it starts to get chaotic, you start to get frustrated that you're not bringing this guy down. Bad things can happen. And I think that's that's one of Florida's biggest benefits. And it's it's something to watch. If we did a like, what am I going to watch for the most? It's going to be Florida's ability to keep him in between the tackles. I think if that happens, I trust that Coach Ham's going to have a good enough game plan in the back end that I think that will get them. Hence why that 17 points is the number. That will get them to that output where I don't think South Carolina can score more than that if that occurs. And so I gave you the macro rather than the micro points. Cause we talked about those micro points. That's good. And I, how it happens. I got to, you got to do some, I get to go second there. So I got to, yeah, I like that. I figured I'd give you the, the top level, the result of what I, I hope the defense does. And now it is prediction time for you first, Alan. I don't like this. Um, because this is more of a gut and a feel because Florida has been so bad on the road. I don't think I can pick Florida to win on the road until they do. And so I'm going to, this is, this is weird because the data would say pick Florida. They should you know, outside of just pure chaos win the majority of the time and maybe even win comfortably in some of these scenarios, but I'm going to pick South Carolina to win 24, 20. I think Spencer Rattler does enough on offense and it's going to be a really frustrating day. Well, isn't that just a downer of a pick there from you, Alan? A loss on the road. <clears throat> However, in- entirely predictable because obviously Florida, as we talked about, one and seven on the road under Billy. The stats in this game and the film look promising because South Carolina has a lot of weaknesses. But if you roll Florida's film on offense and you're imagining that I'm doing a South Carolina podcast, I'm like, hey, this is this is this is kind of great. Like our defense has issues, but this offense is its own worst enemy. It plays terrible on the road. Can we score 20 points? We've scored 20 points on almost everyone. Almost everyone. We moved the ball against Georgia. We were dangerous against Georgia. We could have scored more against Georgia. Florida's defense looks nice, but if we can move it against Georgia, can we move it against Florida? There's a lot of ways you can see how that can help. We're at home, et cetera. This game, I think, is is ultimately one that I cannot pick Florida to win because of the road game woes. I do feel confident saying I think the defense is going to show up in this game and give us the performance we thought we were going to get versus Kentucky. I do believe that. I think this defense can carry us to a win. I think the success will largely rely with them. I think there is a very small chance we get an upside surprise with the offense because South Carolina's defense is so bad, because Trey is playing 
When we got that same effect against Tennessee, that might be enough to get us above 20. But to bet on that, Allen, is to bet on merely hope and not evidence we've seen on film or data, so to speak. This loss, if it occurs, which I'm picking it to occur, is going to hurt me because this seems like such an opportunity. If you take Spencer Rattler off his football team, and you can keep Leggett there, and you put any other quarterback in, this offense is dead on arrival. That's how impressed I am with Spencer Rattler, a guy I generally don't love as a persona. But he is there, and I do think that Armstrong is going to play defense the correct way. I do think we're going to give Leggett a lot of attention, as we should. We're not going to let him beat us. I don't think we're going to just roll Marshall out there let him cover him one-on-one. Uh, so it feels like we're going to do things right on one half of the ball, but on the other half of the ball, does the East-West game work? No one can know. I can't be sure. We're on the road. What do we play like? What happens? I know that Florida desperately wants this game, and therefore with all of this monologuing, I so want to pick Florida because the data guy and the film guy in me says this is a game that Florida can win versus a team they actually have really solid matchups against. But fool me once, fool me twice, fool me five times so far on the road, and fool me no more. Prove to me that you can actually do it before I pick you to win is where I'm at. So I'm going that Florida loses 2017 in the game with which, again, will just be a painful loss, much like the one that you predicted, Alan. I certainly hope this does not happen. There's a million ways Florida can win this game. But again, I think if you're picking Florida to win the road right now, you're doing it on hope rather than on what the evidence says. And I think all of us hope the hope hits this weekend. I want the hope to hit because it can hit and maybe it even should hit. But it's hard to pick it given what we've seen with Billy on the road. With that depressing double L from us, let's go into the Week 7 slate. Friday night, we have Stanford at Colorado. Stanford's been really bad this year. Colorado favored by 12. These games have all been close. Um, I think Stanford keeps it close. I think they stay inside that number. Ooh, I'm tempted to just follow all of your picks this week and let you carry me to glory. Um 12 is a lot for a Colorado team that has issues, right? But Stanford's bad, Alan. On the road. I think Stanford cares enough to want to make this close. I'm going to pick Stanford. Arkansas at Alabama. Alabama favored by 19 and a half. Or actually, this is a neutral site game, I think, right? I'm not sure. I think it might be in the Cotton Bowl. Anyway, Arkansas playing Alabama. I think somewhere else. Alabama favored by almost 20. Yeah, I could see this number getting out of control here, but I'll go Arkansas here to stay inside that number. I, even the games Alabama's won, they've kept it pretty close. It's a big number. I agree it's close. Bama's defense is starting to look like the defenses of old. Does that mean they win 30-10? to 10? I mean, what kind of score does this look like here? Uh, it feels pivotal for Arkansas to save their season to keep this game close. I'm not sure they're going to. I'll take, I'll take Bama in a huge line here. All right, Miami, still ranked. Not a misprint. Mm. They are actually still ranked, taking on North Carolina, where North Carolina is only favored by three and a half. Yeah, I do think Miami will play well in this game, but I'll, I'll take UNC at three and a half. I'm taking UNC as well. Iowa at Wisconsin. Wisconsin favored by 10. The Luke Fickle era off to a quiet but solid start. Yeah, they haven't really played anybody yet. Uh, they're like four and one, but nothing to really write home about. But... <laughs> I think this game is going to be right around 10. It's going to be, you know, nine maybe. 10 feels substantial, but I don't think I can take Iowa, so I'll have to go Wisconsin. I'm going to take Iowa here just because Wisconsin beat Rutgers by 11 last week at home. Kind of feels like a similar opponent. 
We'll see what happens. A&M at Tennessee. Tennessee favored by three and a half, which may be a surprise to some of you. Yeah, I'm going to go A&M here. I think they're maybe better than Tennessee. We'll see. I, I definitely think that A&M is better than Tennessee with this current edition that we've talked about, having seen both of them play. I'm going to take A&M on the road here. I think also, although A&M is a little heartbroken and sad, I think they get up for Tennessee and recognize a lot can still happen. They're still in it. Auburn on the road against LSU. LSU favored by 11 here. <laughs> I don't know, man. Is this the LSU team? Or what Auburn team are gonna, am I getting here? That's the I have other no question. idea. Yeah, no way to know. I mean, LSU ended up winning by double digits in this game, even though they're basically losing it. I think they're just going to put up too many points. I'll go LSU. Yeah, can you see, like, LSU is probably going to score 40 or so. Can Auburn score 30, 29? I mean, but the, I thought Auburn was going to get just blown out by Georgia, and they kept it close the entire game. Yeah, they're on the road here. Offensive struggles. I'm going to take LSU. Missouri on the road against Kentucky. Kentucky favored by two and a half. Man, I'm going to take Missouri. I I don't fear this Kentucky team. Missouri is up and down. We'll see how they respond. But I I I don't think I can have Kentucky giving points. I think momentum-wise, Missouri feels a lot better about themselves than Kentucky. They were they were clapping LSU for a while. I think they fancy themselves. I think Kentucky is looking in the mirror thinking maybe we're frauds. Uh, I don't love the matchup with Missouri's defense versus Ray Davis at this point in time right now, obviously, but I'm taking Missouri. Uh, number 18, UCLA on the road against Oregon State. Oregon State favored by four. UCLA quietly has a very good defense this year. Shocker. I like this Oregon State too, team too much. I'm going to have to go with them. I am too. They're especially great at home. USC on the road against Notre Dame. Notre Dame favored by two and a half. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen this game. USC has been going to overtime or close to it with everybody. But can Notre Dame put up enough points? I mean, USC USC's letting everybody score on them. That's the question here. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to go USC. It's a total hunch. Yeah, I'm going to go USC as well. I, I just think that's too many difficult games in a row for Notre Dame. It's too many. And ultimately, USC is still, even versus Notre Dame's defense, they're still going to score in the 20s. They're going to. And even against USC's bad defense, I just don't know that Notre Dame I don't can know. Everyone's been putting up the th- I think this game's going to be like 35-30. It could be. And if that happens, then I might fancy Notre Dame a little bit more because Notre Dame has a much better defense. But I just think it's too, I think it's too much for Notre Dame right here. Number eight, Oregon at number seven, Washington. What a game. This is an incredible game of the week to me. I am, I'm loving the Pac-12 this year. I love, love this the matchup. This is an incredible matchup. Washington favored by three in this game. What do you think? Right, I've got to see Oregon more than I've gotten to see Washington. But Washington is just putting up like video game numbers against everybody. Man, I guess just Washington being at home, I'll, I'll take them. Yeah, this is a. It feels like I should pick Oregon here because I think Oregon is a more complete team. But I love what Penix is doing there. That offense is so much fun. A good Washington home game. It's a tough place to win. Right. They get up for these games. I'm going to pick them, and that will conclude our slate picks, which leaves us with our second week of our new segment from the big homie. Two bits and a tail. Okay, we put it here at other items, huh? Here we go. We're at the end. We figure we're going to end the show with this because this is pretty fun. So. Are you ready for this week? We last week said we're going to give you a pass. We felt like it was going to be a little bit too nuanced with the the questions. The big homie wasn't thrilled with that, <laughs> but he agreed to those terms. So what you remind us the stakes again here? And the stakes again here is big homie has sent both Alan and I 
uh, shirts and I think hoodies and other things that say uh, the big homie got me, which Allen has to wear on game day. On game day. On game day. Whether it is a home or away game, you must wear this on game day if you do not get this correct. If you do get it correct, he will make a donation to a charity of your choice. Okay. Let's run it back. Let's run it back. Shirts are pretty sweet, by the way, so it's not really a huge loss. All right. Two bits and a tail. Here we go. Steve Spurrier coached at South Carolina for nine seasons, 2005 to 2013. Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish is an alum of South Carolina. And finally, number three, in cockfighting, owners sometimes place metal spurs onto the combatants in order to raise the stakes of the battle. Two bits and a tail. Why don't you start by identifying the two bits? Let's do it that way. Yeah, well, I, I think the the spurs is maybe I would say the real thing. Darius Rucker is obviously a big South Carolina fan, but did he go to the school is the question mark. Can you read me the Steve Spurrier one again? Steve Spurrier coached at South Carolina for nine seasons, 2005 to 2013. Hmm. I like this week's stuff, big homie. This feels this very good. fair and also like very South Carolina-y in every way. I'm questioning whether how many years Spurrier was there. Man, this is a tricky one. This All right, is good. I, I'm gonna go. Go with the two bits first. Uh, so the two bits, two correct ones. Two correct ones are Spurrier and the cockfighting one. And I'll go. Darius Rucker did not actually grad. Because what does it say? It says Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish is an alum of South. Yes, Carolina. I don't think he graduated from South Carolina. All right, here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> cockfighting is a fact. That's a okay. correct. They put the metal spurs onto the combatants. That's correct. Darius Rucker did, in fact, graduate from USC. And the one that he got you with, Steve Spurrier, coach at South Carolina for 11 seasons, to which Big Homie writes in all bold letters, I absolutely did not think he was there for 11 years, which is a very long time. So he got you legitimately this time, Alan. He got me. So Alan will be wearing a Big Homie Got Me shirt, which we'll slap up on our social media on Saturday for the world to see. Big homie, one to know. We we did not count last week. That was one. Of, this week though, you're one to know on the season. I love this segment. A lot of fun. Good work digging that stuff up. Big yeah, homie. good job, big homie. A lot of fun. All right, that is going to bring us to the end of this show, which I told Alan before, and I thought was going to be a tidy two hours. It's not. We're at a tidy two hours and twenty minutes or so. Uh, I know that you guys probably don't want us to apologize for that because hopefully you enjoyed all the content, Alan. Anything else before you close us out? No, I man, I'm really looking forward to this game huge game and i'm really hoping that we're both wrong we come back and get to celebrate the gator victory so all you out there in gator nation love you guys appreciate you i'll see you next week Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.